In June 2020, the second season of The Twilight Zone was released, featuring an episode titled Eight, directed by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. Being enormous fans of the filmmaking duo, we took that episode's title as a serendipitous cue to make them the subject of our eighth episode. And in that episode, we talked quite a bit about just how much their work means to all of us here at the podcast. And it just so happened that the same month we're releasing that episode, a new movie has been released on VOD, produced by Benson and Moorhead, alongside their longtime producing partner David Lawson Jr. So, we took it as serendipity once again that that movie should be the subject of its own minisode. And after recording the audio for that minisode, David Lawson Jr. reached out to us and graciously offered to do an interview, which makes up roughly the last hour of this episode. But first, we're thrilled to discuss the new release She Dies Tomorrow from writer-director Amy Simitz on this special bonus episode of Scary Stuff. Hello, 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 and welcome to this bonus episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dellinger, and I'm joined by my host, Jacob Jones-Goldstein. Hello. And our host, Nick Leamy. Hi, I die in 60 years. (laughs) Just getting that up front. (laughs) Just thought I'd set the tone. (laughs) I choose to make no predictions. I don't want to piss off or challenge anybody on this particular subject. See, I feel I'm either, like, inciting fate, or I can, like, just be pleasantly surprised when it happens or doesn't you know (laughs) i feel like we have to discuss what the word pleasantly means (laughs) if i live to be a hundred i don't care how i go at that point i'd be like it was worth it all good (laughs) so you specifying you die in 60 years i figured it would be and we'll still be recording our benson and moorhead episode at that point (laughs) i do apologize to our listeners at home who turned the pod off double checked the title of what they were listening to and then turned it back on Look, I make no apologies for how long we go. We provide content by the bucket to people. Yeah, maybe we, we would get more listeners if we did this an hour at a time like all the other schnooks, but we're not like that. We are not the other schnooks. We are way too busy entertaining ourselves, which is our number one viewer, and we love us. <laughs> that, that's what always gets me is, you know, uh, like we have a couple people that we're related to or married to or brothers of that complain about the length of our podcasts. For all that we go on about this stuff on the podcast, it's because we get into these conversations. We talk about this shit all the time outside of the podcast, too. You oh, think yeah. you got a five-hour Benson and Moorhead podcast? We've talked about this probably for 200 hours. <laughs> Fair. You're really getting the distilled <laughs> essence of our <laughs> our ranting perspicacity. <laughs> this is our definition of brevity. <laughs> well, there's that lie. What is it? The brevity is the soul of wit. And uh, we're clearly not the soul of wit. No, no. We're more the soul of like sarcasm. <laughs> this time around, we're doing just a single movie. And it ends up being, like we mentioned in the intro, just kind of a natural extension of our Benson Moorhead discussion. They didn't direct this one. But it's a brand new release that their producer's on and has been getting a big marketing push and that we were really excited for initially just hearing about the movie. And then I saw some of the other works by the director and I became really excited for it before it came out. So I thought this would be a fun one to discuss. Well, I don't necessarily follow the market quite as close as as you do, Eric. So the first time I heard about this was actually (laughs) Justin Benson tweeting about it. Mm. And, you know, they tweeted about it and then we got to talking about it and you know, I watched it as soon as it was available. 
And I was glad. I, I really think they're doing the good works getting this the name of this picture out. Yeah, absolutely. The, the marketing on this has been very well done. For the kind of movie it is, the marketing is actually sort of unusual. Just because it... All right, unusual is probably the wrong word. But this is definitively a indie, psychological, interpretive horror movie. And it's not the kind of thing that usually gets a lot of push in... You know, horror social media. I quantify it as uh, existentialist horror. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say that's a pretty good term for it. But it, it's interesting that it's getting such a good push, and I, I appreciate it because it's the kind of thing that I like, and it's the kind of movie in the vein that I really get into and enjoy. Yeah, so like we mentioned in the intro, we're just doing She Dies Tomorrow by Amy Simons. So let's mention two things up front. One is, by the nature of the movie and its concept, we're probably going to be touching on some heavy topics during the course of this discussion. So if you're the title's kind of a giveaway as far as the gist of the plot, but if you're not familiar with it and you want something lighter, maybe circle back to this one another time. So just a heads up on that one. Two, this is a really new release. And as we always do, we're going to be doing full spoilers for our discussion for it. But because it is such a new release, we should probably quickly do a recommend yes no we're going to get more into our feelings on it but just for the folks who want to tune out and potentially go look it up is this something you would recommend or who would you recommend it to well fans of the benson and moorhead movies fans of it follows i would say fans of more psychological horror if you like the lighthouse there's a pretty good chance you'll like this Mm. i would say and I, i look i have mixed feelings on it personally it's not 100% in my wheelhouse, but I can recognize a good movie when I see one. And I think it's worth just about anybody at least giving a shot to. Hmm. It's definitely not going to be everybody's cup of tea. It's very existential. It's about some heavy things. And it's not a typical horror film by any stretch of the imagination. Pretty sure that's the first thing I said in chat as soon as I finished it. My very first statement was, well, this will be divisive. (laughs) Yeah, I would suggest this movie to philosophers. The simplest way I'd put it, like I wouldn't qualify it as a horror per se, honestly. If someone said, hey, I'm a horror buff, this is not the first movie I would ever think of suggesting to them. This is very much a, I'm just going to uh, blow away the crux of the entire film right here up front. This movie is very much about the concept of what if you knew with your heart, like whether it was true or not, like in your soul, you knew tomorrow was when you were going to die. And this was like your last day on earth. Now take that concept and make it infectious. And so it really just ends up creating these vignettes really of these different people and how they would approach their last days on earth. A little bit of Pontypool in Eh. the way the plot functions. In the concept that words shape reality, maybe. But then again, that's also assuming that these people are ever going to actually die. (laughs) There's a slightly different comparison point that I'd use for it. But before getting into that, What I would say is, is that if your response is something that was a little more vague, like the movie It Comes at Night, if your response to seeing It Comes at Night was what comes at night, just give this one a wide berth, save yourself an IMDb review. Oh, yeah. (laughs) This is definitively floor popcorn. It's very much the It Comes at Night wheelhouse. You're right. Yeah. If you're like me and you like atmospheric, visually driven pieces and you have a long history of battling anxiety and depression, my friend. It's Christmas in August. <laughs> well, see, that's that's what I would say. Like, if you want to recommend it to specifically people, if you suffer from anxiety or have anxiety issues, 
and you want something that is going to visually speak to you and how you feel internally and put that up on the screen and you can handle that. And I don't necessarily know that everybody who has issues like that would really deal well with it, but that's what the movie felt like it was about to me was it was about trying to put a visual narrative to anxiety. Yeah. And you mentioned Pontypool as your movie touchstone for it. Just as in terms of the virality of somebody presenting you with an idea and it getting stuck in your head. Yeah. And similar to that, the first one that leapt into my head in seeing this, and it's a film nicotine that hopefully we're going to get to on the podcast at some point, because it's one of my absolute favorite movies is Cure by Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Nice. Yes. Recently on the Twitter feed, we put up some of the wall art that we've got here in post-production land, and I have a movie poster for Cure right above our editing station. And it's one of my absolute favorite movies. After watching She Dies Tomorrow, I went back and rewatched it. I adore that movie. And we won't get into spoilers about the concept of Cure, but it's very much about a sort of concepts as contagion and playing with the concept of hypnotism in its case. Although the nature of humanity that Cure is dancing around is a lot darker than what She Dies Tomorrow is getting into. But yes. my logline for this movie, this is kind of painting it with a broad brush, but my logline for this movie would be, if Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Cure just ate a big-ass bag of mushrooms, that's <laughs> She Dies Tomorrow. That is the most accurate description of I've, I've heard of it yet. That's nice. It's perfect because mushrooms factor into the movie. Yes. I can't speak to that not having seen Cure, but that's a pretty good description of just about anything. So I'm with it. It's funny because it was another Asian film that came up a couple of times when I was reading about this, which was Pulse. Same director, Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Pulse. And I, I haven't seen Pulse. I know the basic concept of Pulse. And I guess the themes of isolation and loneliness figure heavily into that, maybe. And that was why it kept coming up. Yeah. So quick spoilers on this, a couple odds and ends from throughout the films. Within the first five, ten minutes of the movie, I saw the premise and I was like, wow, this is a lot like Cure. And then towards the end of the movie, someone has the line which says, I just wanted to connect to someone or something. I said, wow, that's a lot like Pulse. And then towards the end, other characters are talking about their impending demise, and they say, I love trees. I'm going to miss them. I was like, that's like charisma. So there's three different Kiyoshi Kurosawa <laughs> movies. Sounds like we have to do an episode there. There's a lot of directors we want to do in year two, but Kiyoshi Kurosawa's kind of top of my list. Excellent choice. Selfishly. So we'll see if that happens. But yeah, I love the shit out of Cure. But for this movie, like we mentioned before, brought to us by Rustic Films, which is the production company from Justin Benson, Aaron Moorhead, Dave Lawson, who we talked about a bunch in episode eight, and we absolutely adore them. And this is from a friend of theirs, Amy Samitz. I know her work from her acting career, when she was in The Sacrament, You're Next, and The Pet Cemetery reboot. Same. And The Pet Cemetery reboot, which kind of brought us this movie. It was partly funded by the money she made acting in Pet Cemetery. Nice. Wait, really? Yes. That's awesome. That's funny, because I, I just watched that this last week, just on my own time. Yeah, I was the same as Nick. I knew her mostly from her acting career and was kind of unaware that she had a her directing career goes back away. She's been doing a lot of shorts. And then in the build up to this, I heard about her movie called Sun Don't Shine. And as of this recording, it's available on Prime and it's just now available on the Criterion Collection. And what I would say for Sun Don't Shine is so I watched it right before She Dies Tomorrow hit VOD and it exacerbated my excitement for this movie significantly. And what I would say for Sun Don't Shine is 
if you took a noir and you poured it into a soup pot and just put it on high heat and waited until like 90% of the plot burned away, <laughs> that sun don't shine. It's just the distilled emotion of being in a noir. Just it's the, this couple on the hmm. run and it's just you. It's tight close-ups and you're just living in the desperation, the darkness and the dinginess and that sense of the inevitable spiral into doom that you get from the best noirs. So it's like, we'll probably get into She Dies Tomorrow. You might say She Dies Tomorrow is not a particularly narrative heavy movie and Sun Don't Shine isn't either. It has a plot, but it's very much about just living in this series of moments Hmm. with these characters. And the lead actors from that return here as well. So the lead actors in Sun Don't Shine were Caitlin Shale, who plays Amy in this movie, and Kentucker Aldley, who plays Craig in this movie. Yeah, I know Caitlin Shale from VHS, Your Next in the Sacrament. And uh, I knew Kentucker from something else, too. Can't remember the top of my head. How could you forget Kentucker? (laughs) (laughs) Just based on the name. It's a... Certainly oh. unique name. Right. I'm sorry. He was in VHS in Sacramento as well. <laughs> so Amy Simitz, she started at the Florida State University's College of Motion Picture Arts, and she graduated in 2003 with Barry Jenkins, who directed Moonlight. It's probably his biggest known film, but Amy was actually a producer on his movie Medicine for Melancholy. The year before them, 2002, David Robert Mitchell graduated from there, and he directed It Follows and Under the Silver Lake. And Aaron Moorhead graduated from there in 2008. So that's some of the alumni there. But you were mentioning VHS. and, and Wow, that's that's like the Duke basketball of movie talent. <laughs> yeah. But you mentioned the VHS films and the like. And after graduating, Amy kind of started doing some films with folks who I associate from the Texas horror crowd, whether or not they're actually been off the top of my head. I believe they're started around Austin, but I could be wrong. But folks like Joe Swanberg. Adam Wingard, who's in this movie, Ty West, who we're big fans of here at the podcast. Yes. Delaware's own Ty West. Hell yeah. Represent. Uh, but a quick note on Kentucker. So, <laughs> I assume, as Jake mentioned, that this guy's put up with a with a bit of ridicule in his time based on his name. Don't know that for sure, but based on Jake's reaction, you know, I would assume it's like, is it Kentucky? Is it Tucker? What is it? You know, I assume he got a lot of that shit. So to head off any possible ridicule on his name i'm going to swear this so we've mentioned before that our podcast is based in and around delaware so i'm going to say this right now in the extremely unlikely event that i ever have kids i swear here on this podcast i will name my firstborn child daryl aware (laughs) (laughs) thus taking any heat off of kentucker It's just a unique name, and I'm trying to be a nice <laughs> adult about this. And but that's not, not your strong suit, Jake. <laughs> I, I'm trying to change. You make me want to be a better man, Nick. <laughs> I do my best. She didn't direct the Pet Cemetery, right? No. She's just in it? She's uh, the wife. Okay. Yeah, this is the directing duo who did uh, Starry Eyes. Okay. Because I have... Nothing nice to say about that movie, although she was fine in it. I had no problems with any of the actual acting in it. I know, uh, was it Neon Distribution who was connected to this? Yes, Neon. I know they worked with Palm Springs, Parasite, and Colossal. I like everything about the setup of this movie. I like everybody's involved. I like all the players who brought it to my table. I I love everything about this creation. She also worked on Atlanta a lot, right? 
Yeah, she directed a couple episodes of Atlanta and she directed several episodes and she's one of the executive producers and showrunners for The Girlfriend Experience on Netflix, which spun out from the Steven Soderbergh film. Atlanta, which is Donald Glover's series. Yep. Donald Glover, who was on Community. Oh, that's your Community tie-in. Yep. So there we are. Bit of a stretch. We'll give it to you. <laughs> if you haven't listened to episode eight, Jake swore in that episode for every episode going forward, do his best to find a six degrees connection with community. This is just one degree. Yeah, that's pretty immediate. I swear someday he's gonna be like, yeah, the lead actor of this totally caught a ride for this one guy who was roommates <laughs> yeah. with this guy who once got a drug hookup from this guy who totally passed in the street. The community showrunner. <laughs> the more obscure I can make it, the better it's going to be. Like when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Jane Adams because she's in an episode of Atlanta and she gets really pissed at Donald Glover. And I was like, well, Jane, Jane Adams is a good connection. But Amy Simons is a better one since she directed and worked on the show. See, I actually had you covered on this one just as a backup because I was curious what you were going to come up with. But the one I had was so this is produced by Justin Benson, Aaron Moorhead, Dave Lawson. But there's another connection from your previous films because the production designer for this is Ariel Vita, who is the production designer on The Endless and is the production designer on Synchronic. You can see her in the making of feature for The Endless on the Blu-ray. Apparently, she spent the majority of the shoot covered in dust. <laughs> so most of the footage is just them blowing a leaf blower on her to get the dust off her. But she was the production designer on this, and she also has a little bit of a directing career, has done some shorts. And she directed a music video for The World Ender by Lord Huron. There you go. The band you talked about in episode eight. <laughs> oh, this is a fun bit we're doing. Let me tell you. That's interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of good folks who worked on this. The DP on this is terrific. Jay Cattell. He also shot Sun Don't Shine, shot Phoenix Forgotten, is a DP on The Girlfriend Experience. The editor on this is Kate Brokaw. And this is, I believe, her first feature credit as the primary, but she was an assistant on Room 104 and Won't You Be My Neighbor, which means she's partly culpable in me being a blubbering mess in a movie theater three times <laughs> last year. It's interesting you mentioned Under a Silver Lake earlier, because that's another movie that I would, if you liked that, I would recommend this to. They're not similar in terms of plot or anything, but that's got the same kind of dreamscape feel to it that this does. Mm, I still need to check it out. I, I enjoyed It Follows quite a bit, but I haven't seen Under the Silver Lake yet. I loved it, and I kind of don't think a lot of people did. I didn't read a lot of good reviews after I watched it, but it really hit me right where I think it needed to hit me. It's, it's, something, it's a movie I actually think about quite a bit. And I, I want to watch it again. It's not a horror film, so it's not something we'll cover on this, but I do recommend it. Did it punch you right in the hipster gland? I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> you no longer make me want to be a better man, Nick. <laughs> so we should probably get into the movie itself. Yeah, we should get into the movie itself. So again, spoiler warning for this pretty new film. I'll say this movie, of all the movies we've covered, the spoiler warning is just kind of... I mean, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's important to give a spoiler movie for this one because it just came out. Well, no, I, I understand that. But I also don't think there's a lot you could really spoil because this movie, more than so than most of what we do, it's not about twists and turns. It's about the experience of watching it. Again, it's it, to me, in my mind, it's a lot like Lighthouse. You could technically spoil Lighthouse, but it wouldn't matter because the point of Lighthouse is the experience of watching Lighthouse. Mm, good touchstone. So this movie opens, as Nick mentioned, with the Neon Films logo, which is you know this neon sign that kind of flickers into existence, gives off this big red glow, and then kind of flickers out. 
which given that the recurring motif for this film is this red glow that kind of flickers into existence. It's like, wait, is the neon films logo, the villain <laughs> <laughs> makes the thing. It's like, is the production company, the antagonist? Not that this film has an antagonist. But. <laughs> I did throughout the course of this film really like what they did with lighting and colors. It's very rich and engaging on a visual level. This movie is beautiful to watch. Even if like, you know, I think I could have enjoyed this film with it muted and just in the background. It's, it's very pretty. And we get that from the very first shot. It opens on Caitlin Shale, who's playing Amy, named after the writer director. And that not a coincidence. Hey, maybe the, mo- the monster from Resolution is the villain in this. It's the Arcadian. Maybe the blue and red lights of the Arcadian. He's just getting into, you know, art films. My loop ends tomorrow is the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the revised title. Hey, you would know definitively that you were dying tomorrow if you were in a loop from. <laughs> That's true. That is true. And we get some of that evocative imagery that Nick mentioned right away. The movie opens with a close up on the eye of Caitlin Shale, who's playing Amy, very deliberately named after the writer director. It's just her and you can just see this glimmer of alternating red and blue hues reflected in her pupil. And there's this voiceover, which we don't get the full context for until later. But it's her just saying, I didn't know you very well. We only knew each other for a short time, but it was a really nice time. That period of time we spent together was a really nice time as a tear falls from her eye. And then we also get, without context, this interstitial of Craig, played by Kentucker Audley. Camera's sort of looking at him from a distance, kind of around a corner, as we just see him sort of reacting to something. We're not sure what. It's just him saying to nobody in particular, it's over, it's over, it's fucking over. And he trashes the room and starts saying, I'm not fucking crazy. And then we get another shot of Amy, who's waking up on the couch. Sometime later, sun flares over her. Then we cut to her later, and now we get into the film proper, which is her just sort of listlessly moving about this house. That she's just moved into. Yeah, like she's got one room that's like, oh, still a work in progress. The wallpaper is half up. Yep. And it's the director's house. It was Amy Samitz's house that they used. And I was also encouraged by the fact that her residence, like mine, is basically 50% Amazon boxes. <laughs> she has the excuse of just moving in. I don't, but <laughs> it was somewhat encouraging. I didn't realize this was her house. Now the leaf blowing makes more sense. She was just trying to double up chores, <laughs> make a movie and, you know, clean off the deck. But yeah, this opening is funny because it's like, you know, she comes in and she gets a glass of water and she just kind of starts crying. And then the movie just like hits you in the fucking face with a baseball bat. It's like as it just like hard flashes the title. She dies tomorrow. Loud. Yep. Brilliant. You know, do, 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 do. It just it's so serene and quiet. And then just like gets really loud and bright. It really felt like a sucker punch to my spirit. <laughs> and those hard cuts like that, those jarring cuts are a pretty consistent motif in the, the film itself. You get a mm-hmm. lot of them down through. Yeah. It's very much reflective of a lot of the thematic undercurrent of this film. So like we talked at the opening, this film is very much driven by a lot of concepts, but primarily anxiety and depression. And the movie is trying to simulate that both in its visual palette and then also just the way it's constructed. And a lot of it is these sudden cuts, these sudden cuts in the soundscape, the sudden cuts in the visual where it suddenly jumps from one image to the other. Characters will be languid one moment and it cuts to someone lurching up from a reclined position, gasping for breath. And this is it's also emblematic of what anxiety is. We talked earlier about how you could say that this is a film that's somewhat light on narrative. And it would say that this movie is more so than a narrative. 
this movie is an experience, mm-hmm. which is what anxiety is. It is something <laughs> you experience. Yep. And this film, to me, did an amazing job of replicating that. And they do it in the context of, as the title implies, we meet Amy, who is on the phone with her friend Jane. Played by Jane Adams, who I know from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Hung, and unfortunately the Poltergeist reboot. I haven't seen that yet. Don't. Just don't. <laughs> Just don't. If you've seen the original and you, and you love Toby Cooper and, and you have any love for the original, do not watch the Leave reboot. the memories alone. Leave the memories alone. See, I, I've seen the, the remake. I never saw the original. Yeah. Ooh. And I it was fine. It didn't do much for me, but I couldn't. Well, you also watch terrible found footage crap. I mean, I could see why this would be okay for you. <laughs> anyway. This, this was above your standard. Yes, I agree. <laughs> it was interesting because I, I was having a discussion on if you follow us on Twitter uh, at scary stuff something or other. Um, I forget exactly what the Twitter handle is, and that's terrible right now. <laughs> Jacob Jones Goldstein, the head of our marketing department. <laughs> follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash some fucking shit. I don't know. <laughs> well, we, we interact with other podcasts, and I had mentioned having seen the Poltergeist remake without having seen the original. And Eerie Earfuls, which is another podcast. Terrific pod. Yeah. Commented on it and asked me about it. And it's hard to answer because having seen the remake, which was, it was fine. And not having the original, I have no attachment to that. And I don't know if the remake just felt fine because it wasn't necessarily great or because it's just a pale imitation or, you know, however that dynamic where it's weird seeing the remake before the original. Which is a, it's a whole other topic. It's just, it's interesting that you bring that up right after I had that conversation. It's like having watched Poltergeist first. It's like having, in a different scenario, having read the book first. And then you see the movie they make off of that and go, oh, this is shit. <laughs> <laughs> With the book, it's different because you have a, you have a definitive idea of what the movie is in your head. The only thing I knew about the original Poltergeist is there's a pool and clowns. And, you know, the, they're here shit that everybody knows. Uh, you're, miss, you're missing the tree. You're missing the big old white fluffy thing. Well, eventually I'd like to watch it. (laughs) And that would be an interesting future episode, would be originals and remakes and comparisons. No, no, no. This is you trying to rope me in the Black Christmas. I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) It's coming. Damn it. Yeah, that's going to happen. But it's funny because specifically what Eerie Earfuls mentioned to you in that conversation was they mentioned that they were curious on your perspective of people's perception of movies and how much they're influenced by nostalgia. And I saw that tweet come in. I said, Jake's about to cut an Ultimate Warrior promo on Stuart Gordon. It's just going to be him. <laughs> Dagon is not the masterpiece that some people think it is. On, on the Twitter account, I try Load to... Load it up with the spaceship. Load it up with the rocket fuel. I, I try to speak for all of us, not just myself. <laughs> And you do Which a great job Which is why we're generally very neutral about things, despite what we may say on the podcast. Because we want people to listen to the podcast. I don't want them to hate me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and look, the more I read about Stuart Gordon, the more interested I am as a human being and what he's mm-hmm. done. And his I just don't love the movies. I, you know, we don't all love the same things, that, which is part of why we have a fun podcast. Absolutely. Bringing it back, I know Jane Addams from Atlanta, specifically. She's in an episode of Atlanta where she plays a PR person who is having drinks with Donald Glover, who is trying to fake his way through a scene, and then she blows up at him. And it's one of my favorite scenes in the show. So when I saw her in this, I got excited after I spent 15 minutes trying to remember where I knew her from because I am horrible 
at that. She's fantastic in this. I mean, there's a lot of fantastic performances in this, but she's probably my favorite. She is very, very good. And she, to my mind in this, she was the most effective in terms of, you know, hitting me where I live in her combination of being a caretaker type personality and also having these internal struggles. Yeah. That that sounded a lot deeper than I meant it. I just really thought she did such a great job of that particular concept, trying to take care of somebody while also trying to not fall apart and still falling apart. No, absolutely. And it's how we're introduced to her because Amy gives her a call. Jane's making conversation about, I'm so excited you bought a house, but Amy is making these vague statements, making somewhat alarming implications. You find out very quickly from Jane that Amy has had an addiction problem in the past. It's very clear she's had severe anxiety and depression problems. And their phone conversation is alarming enough that Jane comes over to visit. Yeah, there's one thing she says during that phone conversation that I thought was very well done. She's like, you know, don't do anything stupid. You know, just go watch a movie or something. And Amy's response is... Movie's an hour and a half. Movie's an hour and a half. And I love that idea because while it hasn't been fully revealed yet what her concerns and fears are, when you think you have less than 24 hours of your lifespan left, you start counting the minutes. And 90 minutes wasted on a film was just not something she had any interest in. I thought that was that was nicely done. It was another interesting thing in that conversation that I picked up on, but I didn't get a real read on what it was trying to convey. And that was her not being able to hear her. She says a couple of times, you know, can you speak up? Are you lying down? Are you not talking into the phone? And it felt like there was something that, that was trying to be conveyed there, and it went over my head, whatever it was, and I was wondering if you guys picked up on anything with that. Uh, you could probably go a few ways with that, but I think one of the things would be that the movie does establish shortly thereafter she has a history of, like we mentioned, anxiety and depression, to the degree of that when Jane comes over to see Amy, a few sentences into their conversation, Jane has to tell herself, you have to remember to let go. You know, trying to build up this wall to not completely invest herself empathetically in Amy's experience. Mm -hmm. So if she's built up that sort of or is trying to build up that sort of defense in herself, then I think the I can't make out what you're saying is probably indicative of potential self-harm. You know, when you're on the phone, when you're interacting with somebody, what they're saying is barely intelligible and possibly taking that as, you know, are, are you OK? And so that could be one of the overtones they're going for. It could be something more overtly tied in with whatever this phenomenon is that Amy's seeing because shortly after that exchange where Jane says I can't hear you and Amy kind of lets the phone drift down by her side she also stares off into the woods off into the horizon so yep. it could be tied in with that but my my immediate takeaway from that was simply reflective of oh shit this is potential self-harm going on I just took it as her not being in the moment enough with Jane to give a damn where the receiver was located like she's just too busy experiencing what she's in now. She wants to hold on to it to care about this phone call. So like I just figured it kept like slipping down. Or it, it could be something along the lines of people with anxiety and these issues feeling like they're not heard when they tell people about them. Or it could be I'm absolutely reading too much into a couple of lines. They just they stuck with me when it happened. Well, this is such an intensely personal film, too, that I think that's absolutely valid to go down those avenues. And in the conversation that Amy and Jane exchange when Jane arrives to find Amy lying on the floor, running her hands along the wooden floorboards. Prior to that, she was on Google looking up urns, looking up leather jackets. She had this one song she kept playing over and over again, too. Yes. So we get the big recurring music motif, which is Lacrimosa from Mozart's Requiem in D minor. 
which is also the Requiem being the piece that Mozart was working on when he died. I could relate to the walking around the house and playing the same song on a record player over and over and over again. Uh, I certainly do that. For me, it was one of the bigger touchstones in the entire sequence. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but like during this whole sequence, she is paying heavy attention to like textures. Yes. How things feel. And not and not just one hand either. Like when she goes to touch the wall or the floor or the leaves and the dirt, she's almost always with both hands and like getting her face in there too. You know, just like the full experience of what these textures and surfaces feel like. Kind of like this is the last time I'm gonna be able to experience these and I really want to know them. I really want to get in there with them. And I'll have to admit, while I did not feel like I was dying tomorrow, <laughs> that idea was kind of infectious. I found myself like noticing the texture of the couch I was on, you know, and the coolness of my glass. I was like, you know what? She's gonna do it. I'm gonna do it too. <laughs> and I found that interesting. Yes, everything becomes very tactile. So she's under the impression she's convinced with a hundred percent conviction at her base level that she's going to die tomorrow and and everything in the place becomes very tactile even to the degree of one of the things i liked was the touching the wood it's as simple as when she's googling stuff online she just starts caressing the desk so the tactile part of it was interesting but one of the things i really liked is so much of the experience of people as they're wrangling with mortality in this it's always kind of in juxtaposition to something that feels primal or primordial so in the case of wood, it's with these base elements. And as she's stroking the floorboard and Jane comes over, she comments to Jane, you know, this is something that used to be alive. Now I walk on it and I don't even think twice. But in death, it becomes useful, you know, and I want to become useful. She wants to become a leather jacket rather than a floor, but it's <laughs> the same principle. So the wood thing being this very primal element, but also a lot of the visuals we get, which are partly spinning off of Jane's artwork, which we'll get into shortly. A lot of these very hypnotic visuals that we get feel very primordial. It looks like cells and everything's on a microscopic level. And it's faced with death. It's about returning to, to the base elements, returning to the origin point. Oddly enough, one of the big movies this reminded me of was The End of Evangelion. Ooh. And I don't mean the TV show. I mean the movie called The End of Evangelion, yeah. which is when the apocalypse happens, everybody on the planet Earth dissipates into a puddle of LCL fluid which is literally the primordial soup from which life sprang. So it was one of those things. It was, this movie has a very apocalyptic feel. And again, it's about kind of returning to this source point almost. And also, if anyone there wants to do an AMV of this movie to the song Come Suser Todd that was used in Evangelion as the apocalypse was going on, by all means, that would be amazing <laughs> and incredibly apt. Nice. That's interesting. And she's telling, Amy is telling Jane that, you know, I'm going to die tomorrow. And they have this very, they have this very insistent exchange, which is, no, you're not. Yes, I am. Which they do seven times. <laughs> <laughs> and this is when Jane has the moment where she says, you know, you can't let yourself get so attached. So she says, look, I got to go. And specifically, she says, I will not be held hostage. Yep. And she has to bring salad at this point. <laughs> to her brothers. So she leaves. And as she leaves, Amy hears this weird sort of infantile moaning going on in another room. She gets up and slowly approaches it. And we get this sort of indistinct choir of voices as she gets closer. Yeah, it starts off very blurry and only gets more in focus as she gets closer. Yes. So this is where we get, we talked in the Benson Moorhead episode about how 
some of their works were compared to David Lynch. And this was the, oh, well, this is very Inland Empire. Yes. We very much keyed in on the David Lynch. Someone slowly approaching the camera is creepy as fuck. Yep. You know, without fail. So I don't know if Lynch was the direct influence here, but it was what I instantly went to Inland Empire. And then after going to Inland Empire, I got sad thinking of the notion of David Lynch contracting the contagion in this movie of thinking he's going to die tomorrow because we've mentioned in previous episodes, David Lynch is currently doing daily weather reports every morning on his YouTube <laughs> channel. And it's one of the few bright spots I have in my morning every day is him. And I would be so sad if I popped on YouTube one day and it was good morning. It's August 7th. It's a Friday and I die tomorrow. <laughs> but until then, blue skies, golden sunshine, very still. Everybody, have a great last day on Earth. <laughs> That's brilliant. Unless you watch your movies on your fucking phone, in which case you could spend your last day kissing my whole ass. <laughs> So, if you haven't yeah. checked him out, his weather reports are great. <laughs> so she gets closer, and as she gets closer, she gets less blurry. And once you can fully see her, you see this the real first of an ongoing theme of these alternating blue and red lights. This, like, flashing. It seems to be a representation of the infection of this belief. Like, every time you see this, this kind of light effect from now on, it's a dawning moment for others. It's almost like a signal for its presence. It has arrived, and now it's going to either like set in or work more on the individual. Amy is just like, once it really kind of dawns on her, all of a sudden all the babbling and incessant kind of background noise just stops, just silence. She gasps and has this look of fear and then just kind of goes into moaning. Yeah, and it's one of the, one of the consistent things throughout these colors. So the imagery that's used from person to person varies slightly. The flickering colors are a theme, but the actual images are usually somewhat different. But one thing that's consistent is everyone's expression is right on that tipping point of agony to ecstasy. It's right in between where it's people are crying, but you can't tell. Is it pleasure, pain, which it, it's both. And it's, you know, just stuck in this ether in between. It's this moment of almost divine revelation. Is it sad that what you just said made me think of Gross Point Blank? Not sad. Just unfortunate. <laughs> so serious tone shift. <laughs> when Minnie Driver, for, when John Cusack first comes into her studio, yes, when he leaves, she says, "Is this what is what is what is this that I'm thinking? Am I happy? Am I sad? Am I hungry? Who's hungry?" And then she gives away some free food. The way you just described that, and the way that that things, that's what it made me think of because I'm broken in weird ways. <laughs> Aren't we all, brother? <laughs> but anyway, it's not what the movie or the scene made me think of at the time, but now I always will, so great. <laughs> it's, for an opening scene in a movie, it's incredibly intense and incredibly engaging and drawing you into an emotional space that the movie then draws out. Let's just simmer in. I've mentioned a lot of times when it comes to music, like albums, that the first song on the album being a, a mission statement. And with this movie, this it's a fairly long scene. It's 10 minutes, 15 minutes? Probably 15, yeah. It's very much a mission statement for the rest of the film. You know, you get, sometimes you get like opening action sequences and stuff. It's the anxiety version of that, I guess. Fair. It's the kind of scene that's going to tell you right away if you're going to like the rest of the picture or not. This says, this is what we are and we're going to go down this path 
And I mean, most movies have an opening scene that does that, whatever, but it's, it feels very definitive in this. It's a scene that calling it a scene feels wrong. It's a series of images and feelings and thoughts and emotions that draw you very much into what's happening to you. It's, it's instead of setting this tone for the plot, it sets the tone for the experience of watching this movie. Yeah, this movie is an experience. And in the course of the hallucinatory bit that we mentioned that Amy experiences. <laughs> no, I just love what you're about to say, because they go from, you know, it's this like discussion back and forth between Jane and Amy. And then she's left alone. She has this really kind of unnerving and, and upsetting kind of personal experience in this moment. And then it just hard cuts to a flashback. Yes. <laughs> hard cut to a flashback with her and Craig where she mentions, among other things, of their relationships. They're talking about various regrets they might have, again, foreshadowing the concept of you know, mortality. And hers specifically is, I terminated a pregnancy when I was 22. Said I hadn't thought about it until I bought the house, which then lends context to these potentially infantile voices that echoed in that letter into seeing this light display of some sort in the other room. I keep thinking it's actually the light display from the neon demon, and if we ever got a reverse shot, it would just be this upside down triangle. We're going to do that on this podcast at some point. <laughs> that would make a lot of sense. Kind of the idea that, you know, in your last hours, your regrets will be there to haunt you, either figuratively or literally, you know, depending how you look at it. And worth mentioning, too, for all that we talked about, you know, we're going to talk about heaviest topics. The movie talks about heaviest topics. We just talked about, you know, people's lifelong regrets. The movie is also incredibly funny at points and often... Things I thought were horrifying the first time around, I thought were hysterical the second time around. So again, it, it's always dancing on this knife's edge of morbid and terrifying and hilarity. So transitioning out of Amy's flashback, we now cut to Jane at home. We mentioned briefly earlier, Jane, her occupation is apparently doing microscopic artwork of some sort, where she has a fridge full of samples of some variety that she smears, puts under a microscope get the right angle on them, get the right interaction with them, and then takes a photograph of them. We later see some of this artwork hanging in the place of her brothers. Initially, she's using her artwork as an excuse to get out of going to her sister-in-law's birthday party. And then as she's sitting at this microscope and kind of mulling over what Amy said to her earlier, off to the side, we get a very similar light show that we just saw Amy staring into. Jane's attention drifts to, to the point that Jane goes back to Amy's place and breaks the fuck in. Yep. Cuts her wrist in the process, breaks into the house, is looking for Amy. Wonderful little sequence. We get a repeating shot of when Amy comes into the house early on, we have this image of the camera on the floor and we see her in shoes just kind of walking across the hardwood. It repeats that same angle with Jane after she breaks in, now wearing slippers, walking across broken glass then walking across bubble wrap and actually stopping and then stepping, making some deliberate steps <laughs> to pop some of the bubble wrap before continuing. So then she continues, can't find Amy, calls her, leaves her voicemail, says, I don't know where you are. And we just see that Amy is driving off somewhere. We're not entirely sure where, but decidedly not home at the moment. Following that, Jane does indeed go to the birthday party <laughs> for her sister-in-law, Susan, played by Katie Asselton. I love her. I first... Really loved her from the League. She was a lot of fun, though disturbing, in uh, Legion. And uh, apparently she's uh, in Synchronic, which I'm looking forward to seeing. Oh, nice. Yeah. This was the hardest scene in the movie for me. Guys, they're talking about dolphins fucking. <laughs> no, I, I'm perfectly fine with that. Although it seems to have led to 
a revitalization of that picture of the guy trying to fuck a shark that I see on Twitter pretty regularly. What? Uh, and uh, I, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. You got to explain this. <laughs> look, if you're on Twitter a lot, you'll eventually see it. It's a guy in the back of a boat. It's not the shark fight scene from Lucio Fulci's zombie, is it? No, it's, <laughs> it's, a, naked, it's a dude naked lying on top of this fish and i think he's a politician oh that one yeah i've I've seen that whatever reason since i've seen this movie that picture i've seen that picture like six times in the past week and i don't want to blame the movie directly but it probably triggered something maybe i don't who the hell knows i don't really want to know why it keeps coming up but it's funny (laughs) (laughs) is it though is it funny? It's funny. The context of it, I feel, is funny. It's like, because it's always the, the people sending it and going, oh, God, I didn't mean to send that. <laughs> yeah, funny's not the word I'm using. I never meant for you to see that side of my life. But uh, the scene's uncomfortable to me because of the wife not liking the sister and the sister not picking up on those social cues or whatever. Oh, I took that differently. I took it as she picked up on it. She just didn't care. <laughs> you know it's like you don't have to like me this is me i'm not apologizing very very kind of like bohemian kind of attitude yeah i took that a different way in just her she understands that the sister doesn't like her but she doesn't know how to deal with it so she just kind of glosses it over but she's also clearly deep into something by the time she gets there she shows up in her pajamas oh yeah she's at this point fully infected by the notion that she is going to die tomorrow and when that happens, you know, who gives a damn about real pants? <laughs> <laughs> they're comfy looking PJs. They're very comfy looking PJs. As she says, they're floral. <laughs> I think it just hit me because it's one of those things in social situations. I always worry that I'm not picking up on the right cues or, you know, overstaying my welcome or stuff like that. So it really that part of my whatever personal anxiety triggered. Yeah. So it, it was an uncomfortable scene to watch. That probably in the entire film, it was the one that hit me the hardest. Huh. It's funny. It was one of the most impactful scenes for me for two different angles. One is in any particular social situation, I usually have a 50% chance of either being Jane in this scene or a 50% chance of being Brian in this scene. <laughs> who's played by Tunde Adebimpe, who's a terrific actor, has an amazing face. Yes. I only know him from Spider-Man Homecoming. And is just watching his reaction. So he's at this birthday party for Susan, and Brian's accompanied by Tilly, his girlfriend, who's played by Jennifer Kim. I know her from The Blacklist. Yep, she's also from everyone in this is terrific. Yep. Yeah, his just watching him sit stoically, it's like, hey, it's I've been both of these people at various points. <laughs> to this degree of absurdity in Jane's case, I have Well, it's interesting for his point of view, because like he clearly in the beginning does not want to be there. He's yes. just kind of like, Yeah, no, that's let's just get this over with. Yeah. No, I'm happy, really. Where's my drink? And then Jane comes in and she's like the first interesting thing that's happened to him. He's like, I want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> this is way better than DTF Dolphins. Yes. <laughs> Which makes you think that Susan is Tilly's friend. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Oh, and it's worth mentioning Jane's brother and Susan's husband is Jason, played by Chris Messina, who I know very well from The Mindy Project. He's also, for horror lovers out there, in the movie Devil. And most recently, he was in the Birds of Prey movie. Yes, he was. I loved him in that Azaz. Oh, he's so good. He's very good in that. And he's also terrific in Sharp Objects, which I love the shit out of. Nice. Hey, that one I've seen. (laughs) Oh, I like Sharp Objects a lot. 
and he's terrific as Jason here, who's stuck in between a sister who he has obviously deep love and affection for, mm-hmm. and his wife, played by Katie Asselton, who makes it very plain how she feels about Jane. Yep. Jane comes in, embraces her brother. Jane says flat out she doesn't want to go into the other room, that she'd rather go visit Madison, who is Susan and Jason's daughter. But Jason steers her away and says, no, Madison's sleeping. So they steer Jane into the main room. Madison is played by Madison Calderon. I don't know her from everything, but I've got the cast list up in front of me, and I just once wanted to be the person who said that. Hey! (laughs) I I would like to, in defense of Susan, which I realize (laughs) is not the person you may actually want to be defending in any way with this film. Considering where we go in a little bit, yeah. I'm excited for this. But, you know, so, like, Jane is an artist and has kind of her own kind of mindset going on, and clearly Susan is just not down for the way she lives her life and interacts with her. But Jane shows up to Susan's birthday party talking about how she's about to die and then keeps prattling on about this through them singing happy birthday. Yes. And instead of going, and this is true for Jason too, honestly, instead of going, wow, wait, you're actually really fucked up right now. We should address this. What's going on? They're like, ah, crap, it's Jane. And if this is the way she is normally to them on any level, it's hard to really argue too much with Susan's reaction there. There is some degree of sympathy. (laughs) It's some small, small degree of sympathy. I don't like her lack of patience. I don't like her lack of just writing her off. But it's like, you know, (laughs) I get it. But it's an interesting way of looking at how some people react to anxiety in others. Hmm. Yeah, which was very much the inception for this. Amy Simetz has said on the interview circuit for this, obviously this movie is probably inspired by a lot of things, but the core of it was pretty much this movie is about my anxiety and me being cognizant of how people react to my anxiety and seeing that my anxiety becomes contagious in people. When I'm anxious about something, I express it. Sometimes that ends up being communicable. And obviously in current climate, as pretty much every article about this movie has stated, now in the COVID world, this has become exceptionally apt. People looking for things to be anxious about and they're being... Easy to find these days. No shortage of things to fill that void. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting that we, when we talk about Susan, we instinctively you paint her as the villain. And she, she clearly does not react well, but it's born out of, it seems to be born out of frustration more than, you know, deep-rooted malice yes now she i would say that she reacts poorly and the wrong way and it's not i'm not defending her she's given up her sympathy and that's unfortunate yeah i I wouldn't necessarily call her a villain she's just somebody who doesn't know how to handle this and doesn't feel like she should and in some cases that's valid Mm -hmm. we don't have that much in this we don't know if this is how jane always is and stuff so it's it, it comes off as very poor and it is again not defending that reaction, but there is a way to kind of look at it and work through it and understand that perspective as well, which I guess is probably the entire point of this scene, as Eric said. And Jane, in her exchange with Susan, one thing I really enjoyed was the way Jane communicates the situation. And when she's describing this feeling she has, she articulates it as, you know, the way that you know when you're about to get a cold the next day and it hasn't hit yet, I know that's what's happening. I'm going to die tomorrow. I was like, oh, that's that one really hits me. That certainty that when I drop this plate, it'll break. That's the same level of certainty I have. Yeah. And yeah, she's washing plates after the uh, birthday cake is presented and she drops this plate to make a point. And you can hear Susan from the other room. 
understandably, as we just said, go, what the fuck? <laughs> it's funny to think back in the initial scene when she's talking to her on the phone conversation. She says, this is, she just hates me. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. It's her not being able to process, I guess, where this all comes from. I do like the one line Jane has during this. Humans are the only animals that pretends to be what it's not. I forget who she's quoting, but I was like, oh, that's nice. And also notes that I know that when I die, I don't want to be alone. To which Susan reports, well, I know that it's my birthday and I want to talk about dolphin fucking. (laughs) And to be fair, dolphins are fucked up. They don't seem like it, but they're fucked up. No, everything Susan said was accurate. Yes, it is true what she says. So then we get the aforementioned plate breaking sequence. And then Jane is visited by another hallucinatory sequence. This time preceded by her telling her brother, I hear mom. And she sort of turns and her brother's not sure what she's talking about. But Jane is seeing this light show and we can just get a flicker of images can't entirely discern them but one of them is a flicker of a face of josh lucas who we're about to meet so jane departs from the party and skipping around to her next sequence is yeah she goes to visit the doctor's office and the doctor is played by josh lucas which i was floored by because this watch the sequence that dude looks a lot like josh lucas holy shit it is him And he's also kind of a terrible fucking doctor. Yes. Because his first response is when she's expressing her concerns is, well, if you're worried about catching something, I could easily give you antibiotics. But it was like, ah, you're contributing to antibiotic resistance, you motherfucker. (laughs) Give him away. (laughs) But we should mention before she goes in to see the doctor while she's sitting in the waiting room, we get what I thought was one of the funniest things I've seen all year, which is Jane sitting in the lobby trying to reach Amy again on the phone. And when she calls Amy earlier, she gets Amy's voicemail and it establishes that Amy's voicemail message is, hey, it's Amy. Leave a message or text if it's important. And Amy has since changed her message to there's no need to leave a message. (laughs) (laughs) Which is low key the funniest fucking thing (laughs) that she took the time to change her voicemail message. And we get further context for her doing that because you can actually hear someone in the background and we get to see her actually changing her message later. But just as its own joke before we get the context, I laughed my ass off. <laughs> so to complete the sequence with Jane real quick, before we go into the other characters, Jane is talking about her various fears to Josh Lucas, and he ends up contracting them as well when you know he hears the phrase about dying tomorrow. But one thing I wanted to mention, one of Jane's fears that she brings up specifically is sexual assault is the example of a nightmare she gives. Again, we're talking about some heavier stuff here, but just... Specifically in New York. Yes, specifically in New York. Which I wanted to mention is one thing I think would be an interesting read to do on this movie is specifically looking at it, you know, we're looking at it through the lens of anxiety and depression, but trying to look at it specifically centered around a woman's experience with anxiety and depression. Because the movie is called She Dies Tomorrow. It is not called I Die Tomorrow, even though the character is named after the writer-director. There's no secret that it's the director is very much based in the lead character around herself. It's not called You Die Tomorrow. It is called She Dies Tomorrow. And there's a lot of very key imagery that I think ties in with that, where we get these the fear that Jane mentions, the extensive discussion that occurs around menstrual blood that we get towards the very, very end. So I would think it would be interesting to do a read on the movie through that particular lens. Just occurred to me that I think the title was, my guess would be the title choosing is very deliberate in that particular case. Yeah, that makes sense. It's an interesting way to, to think about it. I just, whenever I hear people talk about distinctly being afraid of New York, I remember an old girlfriend of mine who lived in Mississippi 
and came up to visit me. And her family had warned her from doing that because she was too close to New York and she was going to get mugged and shot. Oh, we live three hours from New York. Oh, <laughs> it throws a wide range of crime. <laughs> a lot of people are very afraid of New York City because I assume Scorsese movies in 1978. Nostalgia, right. That's <laughs> not what I meant. <laughs> Load the spaceship with the nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> I got to Photoshop Jake as the ultimate warrior at some point. <laughs> so Jane is not the only one who goes to the hospital. No, she is not. Yeah. So she, in her wake, has left infection and everyone else who was at the party. And Brian and Tilly have a brief exchange in the car and say, You want to get a drink somewhere? And go off and they settle into, I'm going to die tomorrow in part of this montage sequence. As Jason and Susan also fall into the same cycle. So it's this kind of four-way mashup of them all having this sort of revelation or infection moment. And then, yeah, Nick mentioned Brian and Tilly set off for the hospital. Can I mention that this scene reminded me of something stupid, kind of like the other one with Gross Point Blank? Did you ever watch The Office? I think you both have, or at least you have, Nick, right? Seen quite a bit, yes. First few seasons, yeah. Maybe all of it. You know the dinner party episode? Yes. It made me think of that. Now, now the, the dinner party episode was more awkward than this. <laughs> but when Jim and Pam go and get ice cream afterwards and are talking in the car, this made me think of this is the non-funny version of that. But it, it was still what it made me think of, like going out after a dinner party to get something, which has, you know, I've been to occasionally awkward dinner parties like that and have gone out afterwards and gotten a hamburger. My parents had a lot of hippie friends growing up, <laughs> just a lot. So yeah, anyway, it made me think of The Office, which I'm sure is entirely not what we were supposed to do, but it's a touchstone for me in terms of that particular concept because, you know, whatever, I lived in sitcoms, something. I, I promise you this movie didn't make me think of that many comedies, but it did come up. <laughs> Quite a few, though. <laughs> you know what this movie reminded me of? The most beautiful movie of all time, Movie 43. Ah! <laughs> it's so beautiful out here. <laughs> miss you, Fred. <laughs> we also miss you, Dan, number one fan, friend of the pod. Number one fan, Dan, we Just miss you. Reminder. So while Amy seems to be, you know, with this realization of her death, very into re-experiencing the tactile doing things she was meaning to do and experiencing these last moments of life and tasting and feeling it as she can. And Jane is very into not being alone. Mm -hmm. Jane wants to be around people. She wants to be interacting with people. This is the thing she's been missing and wants more of. Brian and Tilly, on the other hand, are very much in sort of the, we need to wrap up the things we've been meaning to do. Tilly has been meaning to break up with Brian for a while now. <laughs> yes. Um, the only reason she hasn't is because his father had a stroke. Said, I was going to give it three months. I didn't want to be an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and now that they've, you know, they've like 24 hours to live or less, she's like, you know, I just, we should end this. <laughs> the one thing I want to do is end this because it should have ended six months ago. And he's like, that's fine. You know, I respect that. But I need to go take my father off life support now. <laughs> Let's end someone else first. Yeah. <laughs> Which seems like a particularly mean response to thinking you're going to die tomorrow. I disagree. It got very strong impression that his father was probably brain dead for a while now. And the only reason he was still alive is because Brian needed it. Brian needed him to be there. And now that Brian wasn't going to be here anymore, it was just mean to leave him. And so he stood up and did the right thing and let his father go as the last thing he was going to do before he went. 
And I thought it was, you know, I understood where it was coming from. Just when he, you know, should he wake up two days later and go, oh, fuck, what have I done? <laughs> that, that'll be that'll be more interesting. <laughs> yeah, Brian commits this act from a place of love. Yes. Says, you know, I love you, Pop, as he unhooks him. And someone else doing something out of love, in a sense, in tandem with this, Jason and Susan have contracted this notion that they're going to die tomorrow and immediately infect their daughter by going and <laughs> waking her up in bed and telling her, you know, oh, it's okay, it's okay. By the way, we're going to die tomorrow, and so is your dad. <laughs> that was so hard to watch. It's so oh, hard to yeah. watch. And the, the subsequent scene was the most horrifying bit of the movie for me where it cuts away, and when it cuts back, we don't see their daughter, Madison, but we hear her in absolute hysterics. Yep. Yeah. And I don't want to die tomorrow. I don't want to die. And just, it's gut-wrenching. Yep. And Susan's interpretation of this is, she did this to us. It's Jane's fault. To which Jane's brother says, well, what do you want to do? And Susan says, you know. And he acquiesces, okay. So they take off to do something to Jane. So again, these twisted actions being done from some perverse angle of love. Yeah. It's, it's That whole sequence was just really, really tough for me. I don't have anything to relate it to, thank God. Just, I guess I would relate it to a boxing match where you get pinned in the corner and he starts working you over. You know? <laughs> the Hammerhead Hagen of... Uh... <laughs> yeah, reference Digstown, how does it feel? Boom, 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 boom. If you haven't seen Digstown, go see it. Pretend James Woods is a decent human being for like an hour and a half and you'll be fine. <laughs> that was exactly what I was about to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's impossible to do that. And it's a hard movie. I can't even rewatch it now. And as much as I hate James Woods as a human being, and as much as I'm revolted by him, the fact that he ruined one of my favorite movies, I I, I, I just, you know, it's a concept we probably don't even need to get into art and artists and all that. But I just fuck James Woods. You want to move up our John Carpenter episode so we can go ahead and get John Carpenter's vampires out of the way? Yes. If you want to light into James Woods. Teak mahogany. We can we can push that up on the schedule. I don't want to badmouth anybody, but that <laughs> dude deserves badmouthing. <laughs> so yeah, well, while all this is happening, like Amy's off at like a dune buggy ranch, renting it up and just going to town. Yeah, dune buggy rental run by Adam Wingard, director of Your Next, among other things. But Amy Simons was in Your Next. Has one of the more amusing bits. This is where Amy is recording the voicemail, which says, you know, there's no point in leaving a message. And in the dialogue exchange that they're having about renting the Doom Buggy, where she has the, the line about, well, I'm going to die tomorrow. And his response is basically, uh, <laughs> and it just like, trails. Not on my watch. <laughs> Put the helmet on. <laughs> I will say this scene was in particular very relatable to me because like if I thought I was going to die tomorrow and Dune Buggies were an option for my last 24 hours, hell yes. Fair, fair. And the nighttime dune buggy ride transitioned us into another flashback with her and Craig, where they see the dune buggy thing during the daytime, comment on it, and mill about their new house. It's his brother's place. That's right. Hot tub, no TV, drinks. Yep. And commenting on the series of bottles they have set up, which he comments and says, oh, does your brother just, like, shoot those? Does he have guns? Says, yeah, yeah, sometimes they shoot them. So just kind of this thing that's dropped in a bit, but the notion of a gun being present becomes important. They discuss doing mushrooms. We made a joke about this movie being on mushrooms earlier. This is where that comes into play. We get another nod to Amy having a history with addiction, which came up earlier in her exchange with Jane, where she mentions, you know, I'm not going to drink alcohol, but I'll do mushrooms. You know, 
And then we shortly see them playing <laughs> Go Fish on mushrooms. Never having done mushrooms, though, uh, always mildly curious. You know, the idea of playing Go Fish with mushrooms just sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> Apparently that makes the colors a little brighter is all they say about the experience. <laughs> Do you have any existential sevens? <laughs> Go Fish. <laughs> and related to that, we get a pizza delivery. So pizza arrives. Craig goes off to grab the pizza and pay for it. And Amy's just sort of sitting back at the table, and Craig is taking an unusually long time at the front of the house. Craig is just standing in the doorway of the house, staring at this pizza box, and slowly returns in. We get My a- thought when I saw this scene was, this is where the, the Pool reference mostly came from me, because all I could think is that pizza guy's telling him Mrs. Sonny's cat is missing, or whatever the line is. You see, is. <laughs> that was my thought, too. Not so much the Pool thing, but like this is the moment where the pizza guy infects him. Yeah. This is somewhere else, and now it's hit him, and this is where our story kicks off from this existing infection which has come to town. In terms of contact tracing, it comes from the pizza guy. But I feel it's better to think it's not from the pizza guy. It's not. Just in this moment, while on the shrooms and staring at the pizza box, this combination of the shrooms and pizza box and standing in the dark and, you know, in this point of your life, and and it just kind of dawned on him, and that was the creation of the virus. That was the dawn and the upspring of the virus. And it's very important to me that this is the upspring and start of the virus. Because if it's not, and in, in actuality, it was given to him by the pizza man, who also believes he's going to die tomorrow. The last fucking thing I wouldn't want anyone to ever do, thinking that they're going to die tomorrow, is say, fine, but I need to deliver these pizzas. <laughs> it's crucial that in the last 24 hours of my life, that you, sir, have this delicious pizza. <laughs> and if I don't accomplish this goal, my life will have no meaning. And that, compared to anything else in this movie, that would be way too fucking depressing to be true for me. <laughs> that is faith in your product when it is so goddamn delicious that you know it should be the last thing people taste. Now I'm going to be thinking of the t- scene in... Uh... <laughs> community and the, the multiple timeline episode where the guy comes in and they mention multiple universe and the pizza guy gets a look on his face and goes there's multiple timelines <laughs> <laughs> and they slam the door in his face oh. now that's kind of what i'm pictured in the scene now because again i'm broken oh it's i just cannot imagine someone is that fucking awful in life they're like the best high of my life in last four is i'm gonna deliver your pizza <laughs> But no, like Nick mentioned, ostensibly what this moment where the pizza arrives is the origin point from what we see in the film. Yeah. This is as far back as we go chronologically in the inception point of this. Yes. Is Craig looking at a pizza box. And after looking at this pizza box, we get the contagion, which the predominant colors of it are red and blue. Ah. Is is this Domino's fault? <laughs> <laughs> God damn you, Domino's. Domino's pizza is depressing. It's true. Because if it is, this would make for the most amazing fucking tie-in campaign. Just the whole fucking ad campaign. Just this commercial going. As you find yourself standing on the precipice of death, staring into its kaleidoscopic wonder and horror, you extend a single finger towards the fragile membrane separating this world from the next. You softly caress it. It trembles for a fleeting moment before rupturing entirely evaporating like a soap bubble. And from that fissure, we are consumed utterly by the inky darkness of the ever-expanding void that spills forth. Just like the ooey-gooey center of our chocolate lover crunch cakes! 
<laughs> which you can get free with any large pizza. <laughs> Oh man, now I want pizza. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It also made me think of the you set this doll to evil bit where it's like, oh, you were supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody set this pizza to evil. <laughs> you were supposed to order from Domino's pizza. You ordered from Thanatos pizza. <laughs> See, now now this is officially the blackmail moment of the segment where Domino's can either sponsor us or not. Do you want to be <laughs> Domino's who brings you, you know, cheesy bread pizza or brings you death tomorrow? Your choice, Domino's. <laughs> Offers in the table. Your move. <laughs> Your Maybe that'll move be Domino's. the episode title. Your move, Domino's. Your move, Domino's. <laughs> we already get contactless delivery now because of the pandemic. Now I have another reason to continue that long after the pandemic. So, uh, bravo, Domino's. Bravo. <laughs> So this is the infection moment for Craig. Who's the fucking delivery guy? Kierkegaard? Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) It was Werner Herzog. (laughs) Before you bite into this pepperoni pizza, I feel the need to explain how pointless your entire existence is. There is no point in tipping me. Currency is meaningless where I'm going. All I need are two coins to pay the ferryman. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's where the flashback ends, which brings us back to the now, where Amy is now getting high with the Doom Buggy guy. Yes. Just bonging it up. And unfortunately, he is now infected and is like, oh crap, I'm gonna die tomorrow. He's like, wanna make out? She's like, sure. (laughs) Then it gets hot and heavy for about five seconds before he's like, ah, I can't do this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Funny little cameo sequence from Adam Wingard. So random. I love it. I was waiting for somebody to do that. I was waiting for somebody to be like, hey, fuck it. I'm dead tomorrow. Let's make out. (laughs) I was glad it was at least addressed. And in tandem with this, Jane is returned home and once again sits down in her microscope. But now she's talking aloud to... We don't see who could be the slides, could be this apparition, could be your mother whose voice you heard. She just says, hello. No, I missed you. I miss you all the time. This was the part that upset me the most because it's like everybody seems to have their motivations and everyone has their things they're going for. Like Amy's going and getting hers. She's going to get her last moments. She's going to get her last experiences. And all Jane wanted to be was not alone. And in the end, she just kind of coalesces and goes back to home. It's like, ah, oh, that's. This is fucking awful. (laughs) But from a technical standpoint, she's not alone very long when she turns to the stairs and says, is this how it ends? (laughs) (laughs) Because correct, she is not alone. (laughs) Because when attempted murder is involved, you're never truly alone. (laughs) When you attempt murder, you make a corpse out of you or me. And that's the saying, right? (laughs) So all we see is Jane saying, you know, is this how it ends? Amy returns to the vacation home where we see Craig's body. There is blood on the walls. There's a gun involved. It is decidedly unclear whether or not he committed suicide or whether or not she fired on him. We just see the blood on the walls. And this is where we get the opening narration. The callback. Yeah. So chronologically, she says, I just came back to see if this was real. If you were real. I still don't know if it's real. I didn't know you very well. And then we get the continued from the opening. The time we spent together was really nice. Yep. There's the gun on the ground. There's the blood on the walls. 
And then we transition from blood on those walls to blood in a different location, which would be Jane's basement. So we see her artistic station with the microscope, and it is strewn with blood. There's a bloody handprint on the monitor, blood that is now seeping into all of her samples, and we can see it projected. It's horrifying, but it makes for this amazing surreal imagery. It's strangely beautiful. It is. And it's a nice throwback, too, because her blood is, is clearly mingled with the slides. And so you keep getting these visual effects on the screen, Mm -hmm. which all seem to be throwbacks to various visual effects we've been seeing throughout the movie, like red rushing and like just this fluids and such. There's just been ongoing visual stimulus continuously appearing throughout the film. And this is a very strong throwback to that. And yeah, I mean, like I said, even if you just wanted to watch this movie muted, it is visually stunning at times and very well done, I felt. Yeah. In the hallucinatory sequences, some of the imagery that recurs there is rushing fluid, almost like blood pumping through an artery or a vein. Yep. And now we get blood slowly seeping over microscopic organisms and the like. So again, it's just all this imagery just kind of crashing together. It's really stunning to look at. And then we cut to the perpetrators of this incident, presumably. Supposedly. Which would be her brother, Jason, and his wife, Susan, who are back at their house. By this time, it's actually morning. Like the movie has progressed almost throughout the entire night. And uh, this scene starts with Jason watching the sunrise. Yeah, he says, the sunrise, it's beautiful. And there's a beat. He asks Susan, do you feel different after what we did? And Susan responds, no, no, I don't. Are you mad at me? He says, what do you think? <laughs> and she says, okay. And he says, no, it doesn't matter anymore. And she says, yeah, I'll go make us some tea. And... Not entirely sure, but I think the tea bit might be connected to a Ray Bradbury short story that Amy Samet was informed of during the making of this, which is Ray Bradbury wrote a short story for Esquire about a couple discussing, what if this is our last night on Earth? And the story, I didn't get a chance to read it for the pod, but essentially the story is them just saying, well, we'd probably do what we're doing now, just drink tea and have a night together. So I'm not sure if that image is an overt connection or not. Oh, I hope so. I love Ray Bradbury. And after having the tea moment, you know, they're discussing what to do with Madison. They say, no, just let her sleep. It's better if this happens in her sleep. They say, you know, you want to open your, your birthday presents? And so they sit down at the table. And Jason hands Susan her birthday present. And we don't get to see her actually open it, which I was kind of disappointed by because I just wanted to see, you know, rustle, rustle, rustle of paper and then. Oh, it's a new set of kitchen knives. Oh, we could have stabbed your sister with these. <laughs> <laughs> because then we see Jane. Who is still alive. That was amazing. I'm like, what the fuck? (laughs) With a decided abdominal wound, but still alive. And has now shown up at the home of... To to be clear, this is not a house we've seen before. She has just walked into a random home. (laughs) Yes, the home of Aaron, played by Olivia Taylor Dudley. And Sky, played by Michelle Rodriguez. Michelle Rodriguez! Who I had no clue was in this. So I that just, that oh, caught me shit. completely off guard. I loved her in Resident Evil. <laughs> She's terrific in this. It was great to see her. We also get one of our... So the score in this is done by the Mondo Boys, and it's a terrific score. But in this sequence, we get one of our rare bits of music that isn't Mozart or Mondo Boys, which is, throughout this whole sequence, is a song called Daylight Matters by Kate LeBon. And... Jane just sort of makes her way through this household of this couple, Sky and Aaron, who are already infected as well. This is important. This is a very important scene because this goes to show you that this infection, while we've already kind of hinted at, might have been caused from an outside source. Again, I really hope not. I hope it was all Craig all the time. But (laughs) (laughs) this has gone beyond 
our known cast of characters. It's gone out to the point where they're now running into people who also have it. We have no idea where they've gotten it from. This has become a rampant epidemic. Yes, this is the most subtly apocalyptic mm-hmm. portion of it, where it's the implication here is it's essentially, you know, spreading everywhere. But we're not doing that in this, you know, cut into a wide shot and fires and shit going on. Nope, it's this much more subdued. It's two folks hanging around a house listening to Kate LeBon and talking about, <laughs> hey, we're going to die tomorrow. And in her moments, Jane gets what she wants. Well, we assume Jane gets what she wants. We don't see her final moments, but she stated earlier that she doesn't want to die alone. And she wanders into the home of these folks who are completely welcoming. And, hey, we're all going to die tomorrow. Let's hang out. And Jane asks if she can swim in the pool, hops in the pool and leaves this trail of blood as she swims through it. But she's not in visible agony or anything. You know, there's no score during the sequence. It's just daylight it's perfectly tranquil it's, it's strangely just, humorous because sky and aaron are just there chilling talking about you know are the ants gonna die like yeah everybody's gonna die whatever and all the while like jane's like wrestling with this like inflatable floaty in the pool you know? <laughs> yes and this is where we get the menstrual blood discussion where they're talking yes. about the history of menstrual blood as jane is leaving this crimson trail through the pool mm-hmm. and climbing up on this inflatable animal raft at the same time and this is the last time we see Jane. Yep. We don't get to see her again. So there's actually a chance that while stomach wounds are nasty and they definitely bleed a lot, there's a chance she survives. Absolutely. We never actually see her die. Except, you know, I'm, I'm just going to come out and say it now, excluding Brian's father, who they take off life support. I think there's one more. Who else? Kentucker. Oh, Craig. Besides Craig, who is self, uh, I, I'm assuming is self-inflicted, and Brian's father... You don't actually see anyone die in this movie other than those two. Yeah. So it's very much one of these things where I think the take on this movie is going to come down to the viewer. You know, if you're the kind of person who's like, everyone's going to get infected with this. And yes, some people won't be able to handle it and might take their own lives. On the whole, when the whole next day comes, people are going to be okay. Or everyone's fucking dead (laughs) or the nihilistic angle yeah yeah it's 100 percent up to the viewer uh with this film and the ending dovetails into that as well so Mm -hmm. for the the ending after we get this sequence with jane we cut back to amy who's once again just sits upright gasping for air again goes off to meet a tanner (laughs) to inquire about potentially turning herself into a leather jacket she's not that overt with the tanner but from the context we have earlier in the film we know that's what she's dancing around yeah then from there it cuts to her just sitting in this barren rocky area just ash gray everywhere of her telling herself i'm okay i'm okay i'm ready and she sits back out of frame and then she sits back up blank faced but tears running and just repeating to herself i'm not okay i'm not okay I'm not okay, it's okay, it's okay, I'm not okay. Hums to herself, shot of the rocky nothingness with a blue sky over top, and credits. I feel like we should clap. Yay! (laughs) The most interesting thing with this movie, I felt, was how my take on the characters throughout the entire thing is A, I felt Amy was the most riddled with anxiety, the most personally kind of broken on certain levels on the inside and was constantly fighting those battles. But all that aside, she was by and large of everyone infected that we saw who I think handled the notion of dying tomorrow best. 
her trials and tribulations with this, I felt made her the strongest of all involved is that she actually, she's like, I deal with this shit every day, you know? And so if this is actually my last day, I'm going to do it fucking right. And I really appreciated that. I really liked how she just kind of, she was like, you know what? Dune buggy. Talk about Dune. I'm going to fucking do Dune buggy. I, you know, it's a yes. I have a problem with, with alcohol, but you know what? It's not going to matter tomorrow. So let's have some alcohol. I'm going to feel this texture. I'm going to taste life, live life, experience life. I, I really felt that of all the characters, she's the one I respected most in her reactions to the situation. Hell, even with the tanning thing, I get it. I wouldn't do it <laughs> <laughs> because, you know. Oh, I would do it. No, don't be wrong. It, it, it's if that's things- on the table and Jen chooses that, <laughs> thumbs up. Make me a bomber jacket. I like bomber jackets. No, well, it sounds cool and I would respect the notion of being reused. You know, it'd be something along the lines of I'd like to be planted underneath a tree or something, you know, that I could buy. But when you turn me into fucking clothes, while that's cool in itself, and I think me as my essence wouldn't mind, the guy who did it's going to fucking jail. Anybody who wears me is going to be considered a freak. You know, just too many negatives. <laughs> nah, man, use me like a buffalo, man, every part. Two points on that. One is, again, just to get heavy here for a second, I really keyed in on the jacket bit a little bit because the starting point for that is the notion of her wanting to be useful. And that's one of the ways that my depression manifests specifically is the notion of being useful. So that was a really identifiable moment for me. The other part of it is I got a lot of real estate as far as skin goes. I could make a leather duster. (laughs) (laughs) Like it could, you could have a train. It would be like a leather emperor's robe or some shit. It wouldn't. So, yeah, repurpose that shit. See, I, I guess I had a different read on the whole thing than that. I took almost nothing in this movie, literally. You know, the looking at it in terms of, um, you know, if I'm actually going to die tomorrow, because I don't think it's actually about people who think they're going to die tomorrow. It's about people who are stuck in anxiety loops and how it manifests across different people in different ways and how they handle and cope with that. So I don't think anybody was particularly like stronger or weaker or handled it better or worse. I mean, Amy was clearly an addict who had clearly had several relapses. And I, I know people who have covered their anxiety with booze. It's probably one of the most common things to do with anxiety. I don't have any stats on that. I'm not a doctor. Don't listen to anything I say. If you're uh, struggling, call somebody real. But to me, it was like nobody handles it particularly well or particularly bad. It's just it's more of an essay or a meditation on how it manifests, how all of us have these elements to us where we keep under, that we don't show other people. And when they do manifest, it's rough on the people around it, or it can be to a degree. But it's, 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 I have a quote from her I want to read. It's from a Polygon interview. And it did a good job of how I thought of the movie when I watched it. This is from Amy Simon. For me, that's what I was trying to get at with exploring this movie. You can't control anxiety, you can't fix it, and you can't control it. So many people ask me, was it cathartic for you to make this movie? And I'm like, sure, on some level. But it's not like I made the movie and now I solved death and I'm immortal. I still have to live with my own existential dread. It just is that way, you know? And that's, I think, what I mostly I appreciated most about the movie is that it's it is a very much a meditation on those thoughts and those feelings and, th- and that kind of layer of our humanity that we do tend to keep under the surface. And for some people, it is impossible to control. But it's a thought, you know, that you have that, that all of us have these things that we think about, we dwell on you know, money or, you know, how we're going to deal with this or that or the other thing. And the movie 
like I just didn't take anything in the movie literally because of that, because it's this idea of this whole thing is a meditation, illumination, and trying to give voice to those thoughts. I, I didn't think of it in those terms of, you know, she handled it better or, you know, is this the apocalypse or anything like that? Like I just, I just didn't take any of it at all, literally, if that makes sense. Even though I referenced Pontypool earlier, just in the idea of viral concepts, not so much as, you know, they're all fucking word zombies. Yeah. This, for me, it goes back to what I said earlier. This movie is an experience and it's an experience emulating experiences. You let this movie wash over you and take from it what you will. It's about what you take away from the visuals and it's about what you see reflected from yourself in it. So, you know, some folks, like I said, this movie is going to be divisive. It's, it's about what you take away from it. So depending on the degree to which you want to invest in it, might not get a lot out of it. You know, you might think it's pretty, might not get a lot of enjoyment out of it. I've seen it three times at this point, and I've loved it more every time. The one interview bit that I wanted to notate from Amy Simons was from an interview with Film Comment, because I was expecting more of a discussion to come up for this movie, since it comes up with pretty much every episode we've had, is whether or not this is a horror movie. So I was expecting more of that, and that came up in this interview with Amy Simons, which is, they asked, they said, in terms of genre and emotion, were you looking to follow horror beats in this movie? And her response was, I love genre in the way that you have a kind of agreement with the audience, the anticipation of something happening and either you subvert it or not. Obviously, I also really like subverting it so we could get some deeper questions like, why am I scared? This is a horror movie where you never get to see the monster. One of my favorite horror movies is Friday the 13th Part 2. You only see Jason once with a bag over his head, but it's terrifying. That's how I kept describing it to everyone up on set. I love the fact that she mentioned one of her favorite horror movies. It's Friday the 13th Part 2. Yes, that hits me in the feels. I, I have to admit, approaching this movie as me is interesting because I am one of the more laid back people I know. Me and anxiety don't meet often. Any anxiety I have is more, you know, post-life crap. <laughs> so i'm much more of a lust for life kind of individual so i definitely approach this film more as in a can confirm <laughs> <laughs> so i can say that i tended to approach this film more from a if it was my last day on earth what would my motivations be what would my thoughts be you know obviously that would build some actual anxiety in me but how would i channel that how would i funnel that what would i do with it and so the people's reactions to this anxiety was more interesting to me than the experience of the anxiety. The motives for revenge, the motives for self-pleasure and experience, the, the motivations for being with people, for addressing final tasks that you feel responsible for. Those items really hit me more than the anxiety aspects, honestly. I have very little relation to those, unfortunately. Well, let me ask you this. Treating it in that kind of way, looking at it as you know a reaction to literally thinking you're going to die tomorrow and whether that's... Did you like the movie? Yes, I did. I thought it hit a lot of the bases. It painted a broad picture, gave a lot of the potential options and effects of that. Like I said, this is much more of a film for a philosopher, I felt, than a horror buff. For me, at least, it's not about, there's no slow burn buildup, I felt, other than maybe on an anxiety level, but not fear, per se. Yeah, if you're in the conjuring camp of horror, you're not going to like this. Not at all. Not at <laughs> all. If you're about goo, gore, beasties you know don't watch this movie this is not for you or at least don't watch it expecting a traditional horror film yeah i mean this is this is a movie you want to watch because you want to be uncomfortable or because you want to ask some hard questions or think about you know the end of your days you know this is very more a self-reflective introspective type film 
but I would I find myself hard to call it a, a true horror, honestly. That being said, I think it was very well done. I think it's beautiful. I'm happy I watched it. I had a good time. See, I, I thought about the is it a horror movie question kind of right after I watched it, and I just sort of arrived at the idea that it doesn't necessarily really matter. After two weeks ago's episode on Benson and Moorhead, the question of genre gets less interesting to me the more we do pictures like this, movies like this, because you talk about genre tropes and genre ideas, and I, I, I love all of those things. Obviously, I fucking love horror movies and the tropes and the way it messes with things, but sometimes I just like a movie that really isn't any of it while also acknowledging all of it. And this kind of felt a bit like that in that it's what I'd call it a horror movie. Yeah, it was one of the more horrifying movies I've watched recently, but it's not a traditional horror movie in any sense. But I don't think it necessarily matters because the concepts are horrifying enough that it'll hit people how it's going to hit them. I don't know. I came into recording this on the fence a little bit about whether I actually liked it or not. And what I, what I mean by that is. Like, I think it's an incredible movie. I think it's well done. It's a fascinating topic. It's well acted, well directed. It's visually beautiful. But none of that says, you know, is this something I would want to watch again? And I, I honestly, I don't know because it's tough. And the thing I tend to like most in, in most movies and things is, is the story. And the story in this is, is pretty loosely even a story. The movie itself is an experience. And again, I've talked about it like The Lighthouse. And I liked The Lighthouse about the same as I liked this for very similar reasons. It's it's right on that line. Like, would I recommend this movie to people? Absolutely. Did I like it? I don't know. I don't know if that's the, even the right way to say it. Like, it's like if somebody asks you, did you like Schindler's List? I mean, yes, <laughs> but it's one of those, I don't know if I like it so much as I respect it and am impressed by it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. For me, so a few points for me to wrap up. One being, personally, I would I would absolutely consider this a horror movie. I, didn't let you, I think your relationship with genre is, it's something we're going to keep dancing around. And I think genre descriptions are going to be a lot more fluid from person to person. For me, it was like, it's using horror tropes. It's playing on the most horrific of concepts. So I think, again, the concern a lot of times with genre is, like we've mentioned before, is people trying to push something out of saying it's not horror because they view horror as lesser or dismissive. So we don't want to fall into that. But like we mentioned in previous episodes, if that question ever comes up, you just need to lean back in your chair, look to the side and say, hey, Mick, is this horror? And Mick Garris will come crashing through your wall <laughs> like the Kool-Aid man and say, oh, yeah! <laughs> so there's that. See, I don't, when I talk about horror, I don't mean in terms of lesser or... You the, don't, but it comes up. Right, it comes up. I just mean it explicitly in terms of expectations and tropes. See, when I talk about horror, I talk about something that brings up a visceral reaction. Something that a part of your brain says, no, that's wrong. Like a lot of conflicting concepts like the inside out or outside in or living dead or dead alive, you know, things like that. Whereas I didn't feel anything truly horrific with this film. Didn't mean it wasn't scary or had hard concepts to address or think about or anxiety ridden concepts to address or think about. But I guess I could say that being a person who doesn't suffer really from anxiety on many levels, it would be hard for me to relate 
as any of these bits being horrific so much as introspective and interesting. Yeah, like I mentioned at the onset, this was a very identifiable movie for me on a conceptual level. But even aside from that, it's the sort of movie I gravitate to executed in the sort of way I love. So this was very much in my wheelhouse already. I really, really loved it. I'm very excited to see what Amy Simons does next. And like I mentioned before, I've enjoyed this movie more each time I've seen it. And I'm looking forward to seeing it again. Nice. So I love the hell out of it. The other thing I want to mention, I literally just realized I ordered pizza for dinner tonight. I am (laughs) fucked. I am so fucked. Don't say the words. I'm logging out now. I was literally just looking next to me and saw the pizza crust and said, oh, fuck, that was my dinner. Oh, my God. Did you talk to the delivery person? Don't look at the box. Don't look at the box. Don't look at the God box. God damn it, Domino's. Why did I order from Thanatos Pizza? <laughs> hello, 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 and welcome to the very first interview segment on the Scary Stuff Podcast. So after we released our Morehead Benson Spotlight episode, today's guest was gracious enough to offer some of his time for an interview and right after we finished collecting ourselves we gladly accepted so jake nick and i are all here today and we honestly could not be happier to welcome to the pod david lawson jr of rustic films thanks guys we'll we'll see we'll see how happy you are with me coming on after it's over (laughs) (laughs) we're just gracious that you listened to the entire episode (laughs) oh man it was it was so much fun Uh, i like to throw out podcasts i'm like podcast documentaries the news sports i have to have i have two screens going at all times oh of course <laughs> in addition to whatever i'm working on it's like how my brain functions so it was great to to be able to listen to that while i was uh, finishing up some work last week oh no it was we enjoyed you messaging us as you were listening to it and we got to the point where <laughs> you messaged us and it said you know got one hour to go and it's like is he is he doing this in one sitting? Nobody does that. <laughs> uh, I, I think I, I mean, I, it just happened to pop up in my feed, like, and I had like, I don't know, probably seven hours left at work. I did take a couple breaks because I had phone calls or whatever, but mostly it was all done in one sitting. I kept thinking of Christopher Guest and the Princess Bride with the torture device. <laughs> Not to 50! <laughs> <laughs> Not in one sitting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh. We'd like to give a month's worth of content in one go. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I looked through some of your other podcasts. You guys do insanely deep dives, which is really cool. Because, like I said, I mean, you know, it's it's fun to one of one of the idea one of the reasons I love film so much as a medium is like it's a true way to look at things through somebody else's eyes. It's, it's you're looking at it through whoever the director's eyes was, and you're really getting engrossed in it, and then listening to it from your perspective. It's like a whole new set of, you know, and I feel like that's, if we could all do that in the whole universe, I feel like we might be nicer to each other. Just a little bit. (laughs) And that's, that'll be the only poignant thing I say. (laughs) Just get that out of the way. Since you did listen to episode eight in its entirety, and thank you for doing that. That means you heard us talk about our dream of asking guests incredibly niche or left field questions. Yep. So it shouldn't come off as a surprise that, my intent initially was to ask you about your performance as a streaker in Sherman's Way on DVD. <laughs> <laughs> but for the life of me, I couldn't find you in it. <laughs> if you're one of the college guys at the beginning, then it's a blink and you'll miss it thing. Can I tell you, I'm not exactly sure how that got added to IMDb. I am not a streaker in Sherman's Way. <laughs> you're not in the end credits. I, I was like, was he even in this? Watch the end and you're not credited. I'm like 90% positive that one of my 
asshole friends got onto my IMDb <laughs> and added that credit <laughs> as a joke like 12 years ago, and IMDb just won't take it off. That's hilarious. <laughs> I have so much homework to do after this interview. <laughs> I think you might be the only person that owns that DVD. I was about to say, if you want my copy for, you know, for your records, be like, yeah, this is my first acting credit. Yeah, no, it wasn't. Listen, I, I appreciate the question, uh, but I was, I was not a streaker. Nobody needs to see that at any point in my life. So I guess that would make your first acting credit for One Liberation Front, which yep. we did watch for this. And took me a while to find you in that one, but then you ran out of the studio at about the three-quarter mark. I said, ah! Yeah, that was, uh, that was right when I moved to Los Angeles. As I was moving, you know, it was one of those things where... I was scouring the internet for jobs to move when I first got out here. That movie needed a PA. And I was like, oh, cool. I'll do be a PA. And, you know, never done that before. Uh, but sounds, I think that's where you start. And so I, I took the job. And then on my drive from Baltimore to Los Angeles, the first AD quit. And the second AD quit. Oh, my god! And gosh. then the producer asked me if I wanted to be the first AD. And so I Googled how you would do that. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, yeah, I guess I could probably do that. So yeah, so that's how I became a first AD on my first production, which did not go smoothly. Did not go smoothly. <laughs> well, that's how, that's you, how learn. you learn. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I learned. A, I learned a whole lot of how not to do things on that shit <laughs> by trial and error. That was one of my next questions. Actually, was you being the first AD on that? That and I tried to find Best of Both Worlds, but that one I couldn't track down. So oh, I'll, I'll send you a link to it. Oh, if you could, that'd be awesome. Yeah, but it was a had in my notes. It was like, oh, please stop producing so many shorts because we're comic collectors and some of those shorts are hard to find. <laughs> and it's a collector mentality kicks in. Um, yeah, no, that's one of the one of the things like it's weird. Like when I got started in this, I, I don't know. This just maybe comes from my background. Like I'm very organized and like the idea I, I'm incapable of just doing something. I also have to be in charge of it. It's just like my my natural personality is like it's. My wife hates when I find something new that I like because she knows inevitably it will end up taking up some of my time because I'll just be like, I'll just be like, I found a new thing and I'm going to get all involved and here's all my time. <laughs> and the film business was, was no different. And so when I was like, oh, I, I kind of have a knack for this once I figured out how to do the job. You know, I, I did it a lot for commercials and music videos. I probably have 400 first AD days. I could be a first AD in the DGA if I wanted to be. It's just, it's a skill set. It's not a passion for me. It's one of the reasons that Justin, Aaron, and I are able to kind of, I think we talked about this, Eric, uh, in chat. It's like one of the reasons that we're able to do these things that look a lot more expensive than they are is because the three of us are so capable of wearing so many different hats and just not paying ourselves appropriately <laughs> <laughs> that, we're, that we're able to like, when you're not paying four different people to do a job and one person is doing all of them, you know, you're able to keep your costs down. Makes sense. That does seem like a pretty good way to operate when you're making micro-budget films. It's not a it's not a business model that I recommend anyone getting involved in. <laughs> <laughs> the labor of love. <laughs> yeah, I mean, resolution. Not none of the three of us took a paycheck from that. In fact, it was all Justin's money mm. that he invested in the film. So that was literally just the three of us working, you know, during the shoot and and well after. You know, th this really was like. Sweat equity, as they call it in the biz. <laughs> All right. Well, how did you meet Justin and Aaron? So Justin and Aaron met 
at RSA. You guys got that correct. Right when Justin was leaving RSA, he started interning at another production company, and I was a production manager there, and they must hired him onto my commercial as a PA. So then Justin was my production assistant, and he's just really awesome, and I we got along really well. I think he worked as our office PA for my team for like two years before resolution, and it was one of those things that uh, when he finally like had everything together, had written resolution and saved enough money, he was like, hey, I've got this movie. It's like, I'm co-directing with this guy, Aaron. We're looking for a producer. Would you be interested in doing something like that? And I was like, sight unseen. I was like, yeah, of course. Like, you're a friend. At this point, he was a friend as well. And I, I've always wanted to get into the narrative space. So that seemed like a, a nice, easy transition to go, you know, make a movie with my friends. And then Aaron and I met at Ye Rustic Inn, which is the most wonderful dive bar in Los Angeles. Uh, it's why we're called Rustic Films. <laughs> nice. We're named after a bar. That works. I love it. Apropos. <laughs> <laughs> They've got the best chicken wings in Los Angeles. And it's one of those things like we met and Aaron and I, I think we bonded over Reddit and video games and we're immediately friends. And so we're like, okay, cool. This, this works out. And we did a lot of our pre-production in that exact bar for, for resolution because none of us had offices at the time. Nice. Speaking of games, while doing the research for this interview, I couldn't help but notice you were gifted a D&D mini of Smiling Dave. I was. I was, which was really, really rad. Somebody had reached out to Justin. He was DMing a campaign and he wanted to include Camp Arcadia as a town in his his campaign. (laughs) And so Justin then brought me in on the conversation was like, only if you only if you include Smiling Dave. And so then (laughs) again, because I'm incapable of just accepting that I'm a part of something, I got involved in creating the character sheet for Smiling Dave. Nice. <laughs> There's a whole lot that goes into it. If you're familiar, are you guys familiar with D&D at all? Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Great. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're multi-purpose nerds. Okay, great. Me too. <laughs> so the fanny pack is a fanny pack of holding. <laughs> but, but it's a magical fanny pack of holding that if I ever stop smiling, I lose everything that's in the fanny pack. Oh, no! <laughs> that's amazing. So, so we came up with this with this crazy elaborate backstory for Smiling Dave. And I guess he has, the gentleman that was creating it has a laser, or has a one of those uh, fancy printers that prints real things. What are they called again? 3D printer? That's it. Yep. That prints things in three dimensionals. What are they called? Uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so he, uh, yeah, so he made me one, and it was it was really cool. I also have a Funko Pop of Smiling Dave. Oh, nice. oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> Which doesn't exist anywhere else. I just made it so that I could tell Justin and Aaron that I have a Funko Pop, and they don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, this this that's awesome. <laughs> it's very petty. It's very petty. <laughs> This does beg the question. So clearly your film experiences have influenced your tabletop gaming. <laughs> so can you tell me about your tabletop gaming experience, like the games you have played and has oh. anything from those sessions actually ended up on the screen or influence what's on the screen? Man, I don't, I don't, it's, it's weird. Cause what I've gotten into, especially in like tabletop has all been after I got involved in film. I was never really big into tabletop growing up. In fact, I didn't play D and D until I was 30. And I literally, I was sitting around with two of my best friends and all three of us are huge, like lifelong nerds. Respect. <laughs> and we were sitting around and the three of us were like, none of us have played D&D ever. And that is just like, 
not okay. And so we, so we started up, <laughs> so we started up a campaign so that we could play. But all of my tabletop stuff, like I just played uh, Settlers of Catan for the first time. Nice. Two years ago, I won. Yay! <laughs> Longest road, right? Longest road. Yeah. Longest road. <laughs> That's the, the whole key to the game. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I, I would say probably not. And most of my like early stuff is all video games. Like Fair. I was big into video games. I put in seasons. Or I put in like entire franchises of Madden that have gone twenty years in the future and have played every game. Mm-hmm. I've played entire series. Like I'm a huge sports uh, game person i've played entire seasons of basketball with a real-time running clock nice and that's like it's a, it's a stupid amount of time to put in <laughs> um, <laughs> but it really is like a real nice like uh kind of like decompressor for me absolutely so you're you're from towns in maryland right yeah and i noticed in your twitter profile you have an eagles poster mm-hmm. so not ravens no i uh, i grew up in that time between the colts and the ravens Okay. And then, so, you know, Towson is like probably 90 minutes from Philly. Yeah, we're in Newark, Delaware. Oh, yeah. So you're right there. Yep. So we're about 45 minutes north. Yeah. So it was one of those things that uh, when I was growing up, you were either a Redskins fan or an Eagles fan. And like the Eagles had like Randall Cunningham, Reggie White. Yeah. You know, like, it was like, it was like, <laughs> I was like, I can't. And then by the time that the Ravens came around, I had like, was fully indoctrinated into Buddy Ryan. And the fuck you, I'm an Eagles fan. Mentality. <laughs> <laughs> I have an Eagles tattoo on my leg. I grew up a Giants fan, so I, I have a different perspective on those teams. But I understand. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Your thing is, fuck you, you're an Eagles fan. <laughs> but I, I am a Sixers fan. I am okay, a Sixers diehard. So I got into Philly sports when I ended up here. I'm randomly, I'm a Clippers fan. I never got into basketball until I moved to L.A. I'm an Orioles, Clippers, Flyers, and Eagles fan. I like it's right. scattered and stupid. The Clippers are the right LA team to root for, at least. Well, right now, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But when, when, when I became a fan about a decade ago, they were a terrible team, and that's why I liked them because I was like, <laughs> ah, finally, one team I can root for where I never have to worry about them winning. Like it was like my like, <laughs> lovable losers, and then they went and got better, and I was just like, "You fuckers!" Like, I just, <laughs> like again, I'm not capable of just doing something. So you know, I go all in when I my my week is made by how well the Eagles play. There's a wonderful video of me crying on the ground for like half an hour after they won the Super Bowl. I almost missed all of the post game nice. stuff because I was literally like just face down crying. I as a, as a big sports guy, I completely understand. Yeah. Now that you're out in L.A., is there anything you miss about the East Coast? Man, uh, no. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, it's, it's really awesome out here. It's always nice and warm. We barely get any kind of weather. Like, you guys know how shitty the sleep. Nope. Like, I don't miss walking outside and having the water line creep up my pants <laughs> and then have yes. a salt line <laughs> at <Yep>. the top. <laughs> also, when it comes to sports, like for instance, right now the NBA playoffs are on. They start at 10.30 in the morning. At 10.30 in the morning, I can start watching sports. It's wonderful. Football season <laughs> starts at 10 o'clock. I can go to a bar at 10 o'clock in the morning and not be called an alcoholic. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a soccer fan i there's a yeah. bar here that goes that does the premier league which is early in the morning so, so i understand that impulse too yeah our premier league starts at six o'clock in the morning so when i wake up early on the weekends i just go downstairs <laughs> and just immediately turn on soccer it's wonderful 
<laughs> it's better than Saturday morning cartoons. It really, it really is. Also, Sunday night football is over at like eight o'clock. You're like, oh, look at that! I don't have to wait up until midnight or eleven o'clock. And you can also plan something after it, even. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I love, I love this coast. I, I, I miss. Obviously, my family's all still back in the East Coast, so I, I miss seeing them whenever I want. But no, nah, I, I love it out here. Understandable. By the way, guys, I'm really impressed by this research. You guys did a deep dive on me that I was not prepared for. (laughs) (laughs) We, too, only go hardcore with what we do. I'm not not convinced. Eric, did you own Sherman's Way? No, this was a purchase. So, yes, I had this (laughs) ship. (laughs) So, yeah, whatever production company put out Sherman's Way got some percentage of $14.99 from me. I promise you it wasn't a big percentage. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, you know, we should probably talk a little bit about our gateway uh, into drugs. Uh, what? Your work. And, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> I mean, it's a little early for that. <laughs> it's the weekend. But we would be remiss if we didn't ask a question about our gateway to your work, uh, namely Bone Storm. How did that come about? <laughs> um, yeah, Bone Storm. I think you guys hit it right on the head. You, you, it really was one of those things. This was right after Resolution. We were about to go film Spring. In fact, I think we turned in our edit like on the way to the airport to fly to Italy to make Spring. And it really was one of those things where the guys were like, oh, man, we need this like really like introspective, thought-provoking first feature. Let's do something completely opposite. And, and also, like, we, are, we, can, we can be pretty juvenile at times, which I feel like really comes off <laughs> in, in some of the I time. think it helps the work. <laughs> yeah, we love it. Yeah, I think we can all expect... Especially when you get around, you know, and it's just you and your group of friends. Like, you know, we all revert to 13-year-olds. Yep. <laughs> we don't know anything about that. So, so yeah. So that's kind of how that came about. I think Bonestorm was the fifth or sixth different idea that Justin and Aaron pitched to them. And it ended up being the one that they liked the most. Nice. You produced a few other features in VHS as well. Uh, I did some. So last year they teamed up with, oh my goodness, Snapchat. Which was pretty rad. It was a, it was a really awesome concept where people's feed would just it would naturally go into people's feeds, and so it was then like you were just watching somebody's stories, and then all of a sudden you'd be in the middle of a horror film. Oh, um, so I did two of those last year, which was really fun. Nice. And those were both with the director you worked with, The Devil Incarnate, right, Gustavo Cooper? Yeah. Well, I didn't work on The Devil Incarnate. I gave him those. Oh, okay. That's all I did. Watched a few of your other futures for this. Like I watched Trash Fire and a lot of the shorts. I'd already seen Occupant, but we'll have to check out Devil Incarnate at some point because it's found footage from what I understand. And that's a big one for Jake. My favorite. Yeah, that was, uh, I was helping Gus. He hadn't quite moved out here to Los Angeles yet. He was still in East Coast. I'd seen one of his earlier shorts and just kind of reached out to him. And I was like, hey, I really love what you're doing. Like, what else do you have? And he's like, I just finished this feature. And so I was like, okay, cool. And so I tried to help him navigate the festival circuit a little bit. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So for Endless, just to jump ahead a little mm-hmm. bit, you talked about on the commentary that the funding essentially came from a Reddit post. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't seem like the usual way to get funding, although I'm not entirely sure on that. I, well, here's, <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. There's not really a usual way for financing. And also what we do tends to be way left of center. And so like people that are looking for things that like, fit very clearly into a box. Like that's not what we do, but we find intrinsic value in that as well. Like, you know, the reason I think that the endless has found such a home is because it's so different. The reason that she dies tomorrow is doing so well is because it's so different. That's what we want to do. That's the films that we like to watch. And that's, that will always be our business model. 
But yes, it did come from uh, Justin and Aaron had been asked. I can't remember. It was a filmmaker site to do a kind of a front to back production Bible of like, hey, how did you how did you get the movie made? And in talking about Spring, um, Justin was talking about how it was difficult for us to find financing and still kind of is. And two gentlemen over at Love and Death Pictures who had just graduated from AFI and were fans of Spring and Resolution happened to read it from that Reddit post and reached out to Justin. I think we still have the screenshot somewhere because like Justin like screenshotted <laughs> the Reddit message and was like, um, guys, should we? By the way, we do weird shit, which means we get weird, weird DMs and like, like, it's all coming out of the woodwork. <laughs> I won't go too deep into it because it's actually real, real weird, but we got a message from a guy who has an artifact in Florida and wants us to come visit it and take a look at it. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, actually. You have my attention. <laughs> Which is exactly what I said when that message started to get wet. <laughs> I was like, guys, I'm intrigued. <laughs> but yeah, so like it was one of those things that, that Justin really screenshotted this and was like, should we like talk to these guys? And we're like, well, I mean, we probably should talk to them. I mean, it, we'd be remiss. We have problems finding financing that makes sense. So we'd be remiss to like not at least explore every opportunity. Um, since then, we take a more traditional approach now where we have meetings with people, not find them on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, it's one of those things that, you know, our stuff is a little bit harder to define, which makes it riskier in some people's eyes, not mine. Because again, I feel like in indie film, that's how that's how you have a real breakout is when, when somebody's trying something new and really pushing the envelope. Like for me, there's nothing more boring than just an indie film that doesn't try something because you're like what what do you what are you even doing why are we doing this movie if you're not <laughs> trying to like push an envelope or do something new and interesting i like it well we talked about your work with justin and aaron a bit so to transition to another pair you worked with which would be jeremy gardner and christian stella on after midnight I love those boys such a good movie so i watched after midnight this week and in looking at their credits i started to think of them as a bit of earth Two, justin and aaron <laughs> because they have that same pattern of wearing multiple hats on a production yep. with them being co-directors jeremy started in it wrote it christian stella was the dp on it and then they were both co-editors on it, yep. and you were the first AD on that. Yep, that was another one of those labor of loves. Um, that was one of the reasons it was kind of the first. There was a whole block of projects that were like, you know, the reason why Rustic Films was started to begin with. And, and it was called something else. The title was something else, not called something right. else. Which is, why, which is why it got changed. Because it's impossible to talk about it without ending up with a who's on first routine. <laughs> but yeah, so it, it was that project had been one that we had been looking at for a long time and just could not understand why they couldn't get that made. And in that movie is why Rustic Films exist. It's, it's why kind of I broke away. And I know that Justin and Aaron had had an eye on producing some things or helping people get movies made that, you know, other people wouldn't believe in. And, and that was one. Not that a lot, a lot of people had tried to get it made. It just didn't succeed. So I'm so glad it got made. I loved it. It's me too. It's a terrific film. It was a hell of a ride. Thank you. I'm a sucker for romance pieces and long takes. So it was. Oh, <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't know if you know this, but there's not a single bit of coverage on that 13 minute monologue. Mm. I told them if they want to make sure that I never edit that and never like get in there and start really fucking with that, then they should make sure to not get any coverage. So there's literally there's not a stitch of coverage that we could have switched to. Wow. Because you know. For me, it was they really wanted to make that in one take, and 
uh, hats off to Bria because she actually memorized that piece in an audition. Wow. Because she was so pissed off at us asking her to audition to begin with. <laughs> 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 and she was like, oh, fuck you. No, no, no. Fuck you. <laughs> and we were like, well, we kind of have to give her the role now. Like, shit. <laughs> She's 13 pages of the script memorized already. <laughs> oh, that's phenomenal. And she has a new movie coming up as well. It looks like 12-Hour Shift, right? She's got 12-Hour Shift. I think I just saw that it got picked up on Shutter, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's coming out from Magnet, October 2nd. Yeah, so she has that, and she wrote another. Uh, this was going to be, like... Of all the things that, like, the pandemic, like, people that had first-time features this year, that really crushed me. And, like, um, I was I was so excited. Bria had a movie, she had a 12-hour shift that was playing South by, and then another one that she wrote that was playing Tribeca. She was, like, you know, breaking out of this, out of just being an actor and really coming into her own as being a writer and a director as well. And so, like, that just, that sucked. I mean, it made me so sad. Because both the movies are great, and she's a phenomenal writer. Yeah, she's terrific in the movie. I was excited to find out she's a comic writer, too. So I'm going to oh, be checking fun. out her comic books. Yes, I think she had just been showing up. Yeah, yeah, she's done some for IDW, it looks like. And yeah, I'm looking forward to checking those out. Yeah. So I guess that'll transition us into another filmmaker you've worked with as part of Rustic Films, which would be Amy Simons. Yeah. And she dies tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, Sun Don't Shine, I mean, this kind of goes way back. Uh, Sun Don't Shine was on the festival tour. It was doing its festival around the same time Resolution was doing its festival. So Justin and Aaron had met Amy back then and had become friends. And then obviously, like, we kind of went off and did our thing. And she went off and show ran, uh, or was the director, one of the co-directors on Girlfriend Experience. And then obviously is also directed on Atlanta. And so then she came back into our lives because she she uh, she moderated a Q&A for The Endless in its L.A. theatrical premiere, which Ooh. was really cool because oh, wow. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to talk to her, but she's one of the smartest individuals I've ever met. Nice. Like, actual, like, genius level smart. And so, like, the things that, like, she was picking out and asking were, like, deep cuts that, like, I was like, wow, you, I don't, I'm happy I'm not sitting up front right now because I don't even know how to answer <laughs> to the questions that you're asking. So, yeah, so we, we kind of, like, rekindled the friendship then and then uh, knew that she was kind of working on this movie. And then an opportunity arose to kind of help her out and, and get it made. And honestly, like it, it was a no brainer for us because she was like, I plan on just spending my own money. Uh, I'm going to do whatever I want. And I'm going to call in all of my friends to be in the movie. And we were like, that yeah, sounds I mean, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what's going to be the concept? And she kind of told us the concept of it and had written the first 40 pages. And then she was like, I don't want to write the next 40 pages until we shoot the first half. So we actually shot the first half of the movie before she wrote the second half. Oh, wow. She wanted to see where the story took her. Huh. I love that. I love that. Which was really cool. I, it's not something I recommend for everybody because I don't know that I don't know that most people could pull that off. But I also know that the movie isn't what it is if we hadn't done it that way. It, it was the absolute perfect. It was a terrifying way as a producer to try to like make a movie because <laughs> there were so many question marks that i was like i don't even know where we're shooting how are we gonna pull a permit we're shooting in two days anyway so that had its own like it had its own i don't even they're not faults because again like it's not the movie it is if, if she had just written the entire movie a lot of what happens in the second half was kind of defined by things that her and jay and kate and jane had kind of found in those characters and in the movie mm. It's more organic this way, yeah. Yeah, and there was a lot of conversation between weeks one and two where Amy would just like spitball 
a whole bunch of ideas. She's like, what about this? What about this? What about that? I was like, oh my goodness. Like my head was spinning. Like her, her <laughs> brain works on a, on a totally different level than everybody else's. It's kind of an interesting extension of the mantra you've got at Rustic Films, which is we want to make the films that no one else will. And in this case, it's make them in a manner that no one else will. Absolutely. I, it, it's not a smart way to make a movie. And like I said, <laughs> most, most people would fail horrendously if you tried to make a movie like this because, you know, everything's supposed to be done with intention. And really, this was about letting the movie come to us. Like there were there was originally supposed to be a whole different ending to the movie. Oh, wow. That looking back on it now kind of doesn't even make sense. It's like, you're like, oh, wow, that, that's not even the story that we were really trying, that, that we ended up telling. Like, that's not even what this is about. So That's amazing. Yeah. I imagine making a film that way really brings to bear all the skills you get from doing, wearing so many hats and all the DIY stuff, just not usually on the fly. Yeah, I mean, we, and we also, we had a tiny crew. I think there were like maybe eight of us that were like the main crew and then, you know, a couple actors. So it was like one of those things where, to do something like that, you really have to be nimble and be able to like turn on a dime. Obviously, I've done bigger projects and, and been on bigger sets and commercials, music videos, where it's like everything has to be structured because there's just too many people to, you know, make hard lefts when you've all been planning on going right. There's just not enough time for everybody to get on the same page. Well, does beg some additional questions. So you have this incredible new style of kind of like approaching it, doing the first half and like organically creating the second half. And then add to that mix the fact that you need to be kind of producing and promoting this movie during a time of pandemic. <laughs> how how has that changed the process for you and, and made things um, better I, or worse? Okay, well, here's how it's made it worse. Uh, we were supposed to premiere at South By. We didn't get a chance to do that. Right. Our theatrical premiere was in a drive-in. Obviously, everybody's staying six feet apart, wearing masks. My my like natural progression is to want to hug everybody because absolutely, like, I, I become friends and family with these people that we work with. And to not get to do that was a uh, an actual bummer. And it was like to not get to celebrate something that we had all put so much hard work into. Festivals for me are all about celebration and like celebrating the accomplishing something. Like it's it's for me, it's always like we set out to do this thing. We did this thing. Let's all like celebrate, you know, regardless of what happens, let's all just celebrate the fact that like, it's not easy to get a movie made and we succeeded again. Yep. And it's like, let's, let's be happy about that. So that kind of sucked. However, it weirdly, like one of the things that, it, that it's kind of transitioned to in how I view the film, I like to say that it's, it's, if you watch the film, especially now, it's not going to make you feel okay, but it might make you feel okay about not feeling okay. Mm. I like it. Yeah. And I think that that's really important right now because, I mean, mental health is something that, sorry, I'm going to get deep here and again. Please. Uh, mental health is something that, that like people struggle with. And especially right now, we're all isolated, you know, whether or not you have a family or whatever, you're still isolated. You're, we're social creatures by nature. What it's showing is that like, no, this is, this is a feeling that everybody is feeling. And it's, it's not just you and it does suck and it's sucking for everybody. And so like, Yep. It's okay to be sad some days and it's okay to like cry and just be like, fuck, this is all just like, do we ever come out of this? Those feelings are, are natural and you, you know, you shouldn't be ashamed of them. So that's what, that's what it's kind of morphed into, which I, I kind of love and is a bit poetic in itself. You know, like I said, it, it's, our times have changed how I even view the film. Mm. Well, there is something special about a piece of art that makes you feel heard and understood. Yeah. And she dies tomorrow very much taps into that for i think for a lot of people certainly among our podcast it's been an experience for us as well 
Yeah, and I think and I think that's I mean at the end of the day, I, I I think it doesn't matter who you are. I think anybody that's struggling with something, that's that's the core of everything. They just want to feel like what they're saying and what they're feeling is valid. And I think that the movie does that in in a way of showing a whole bunch of different people have drastically different responses to the same thing and, and gives them enough time to like really breathe in. Like Christmasina and Katie Azelton's storyline just like kills me. Like yeah. just him just wanting to spend that moment with his wife and just like looking at her and just like being like, I love the stupid things you say. And I just like, you know, that, that kind of connection. Um, I don't know. I really, I, that's my favorite storyline. Nice. So let me ask you this about it. If you were in that movie and you thought you were going to die tomorrow, would you soundtrack that with uh, Mozart's Lacrimosa Requiem in D minor or something else? <laughs> oh man, I, honestly, I believe it would probably be Run the Jewels Four, which is All right. what I've nice. <laughs> right. excellent, which is what's been on repeat <laughs> since it's dropped. Uh, I don't know if that's what you were expecting. <laughs> That is a solid choice. I mean, it, you can't pick a best track on that because they're all the best track. <laughs> well, can we ask you a little bit about Synchronic? We know it's not out yet. We we can we can tread lightly on Synchronic. How about that? Well, I'll, I'll come from the outside and we'll work our way in. Okay, great. And we'll see how that goes. All right. So you yourself have quite an established career as a producer with 23 credits, as far as IMDb is telling me. From Resolution to Straight Out of Oz, which is fantastic, to After Midnight. But my question is, can you tell me? What did you learn while working on the short film Hard that helped you during the making of Synchronic? Oh, man. Well, Hard is one of the ones that uh, one of my best friends, Mike Dunker, wrote. And I mean, honestly, what I've learned on all of them is just kind of a, a collection of like how to attack problems. Every set has kind of the same set of problems, but thrown at you in different ways. You know, you just you, you learn how how best to kind of manage the problems. And, and on a small short like that or big budget lit film like Synchronic, they're the same problems. It's just, you know, it's equivalent to like sitting at a mixing board and like different knobs are turned up. And so you just got to figure out like what's the right EQ to get everything humming. All right. How about that for an analogy? <laughs> <laughs> Related to Hard, bit of a left field question. Did you meet your wife on the making of Hard? No, she, uh, we met at a friend's birthday party. Oh, okay. She acted in a bunch of things. She's actually in Resolution as well. Oh, where is she? She's the voice on the record. She's both voices. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, by the way, okay. she was very... She's the voice of the therapist in uh, yep. Endless, right? She was very happy about the shout out. Uh, I told her where it was and she listened to that 10 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was watching hard as the buildup for this interview and enjoying it. And it got to the cafe scene and went, hey, wait a minute. Yep. <laughs> she looks familiar. Yes. So given how early it was in your career, I wasn't sure if that was... Uh, uh... That was early in our dating relationship as well. I think we'd only... I, I, I think we were we were still just freshly dating at that point. Oh, excellent. That seems like a pretty good selling point. Hey, you want to be in a movie? I mean, well, you know, it's funny. She, she, she jokes because... <laughs> Might she, be a little weird in LA, but... It's... Yeah, I definitely... I For the longest time, I told people I was a trashman. Um, <laughs> I, was just like, I was just like... Like, I just... There's just not... I don't know. It just seems skeezy. Anyway, but uh, yeah, she always jokes. She was an actor and a voice actor for a long time. And then kind of pursued different passions as soon as we started dating. She's like, I literally got every actor's dream. I, I, I met a producer. <laughs> and then I gave up acting. Was like, so with Synchronic again, mm -hmm. I guess COVID has probably upended any plans or solidified dates. 
for that to premiere? Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the thing that everybody's running up against now is is movies. Seems like that, being at like a storm at sea. Yeah, movies that have these big theatrical kind of components to them. It, it's you know until it's safe it, it, and and again it's also not up to us. So we're kind of just sitting there with everybody else. We're like I. I don't know, man. I, I wish I could tell you more and I wish I had more information. And frankly, I wish that we were in a different place in this world and everybody was allowed to go to movie theaters. I miss them so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, it, until that stuff starts clearing up, it's still anybody's guess at what's going to happen. The intention still a theatrical release, though? That That is still the current plan. So, you know, we're just kind of until that's not the plan. <laughs> just... Fair enough. But again, that's also something that's a bit out of our hands. It's with the distributors. So we're like, I, let us know. We'll be over here <laughs> making another movie, I guess. That's got to be really frustrating. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. It's frustrating for them, too. I don't think anybody's in a situation right now that, that you know, maybe Netflix and Amazon are in situations where they're having fun. But nobody's, like, in a situation where they're enjoying this. You know, distributors are put into tough spots because... They have all this invested in into properties that they can't they can't put out right now. Like AMC, I think is just open today, right? So like yeah. before then, like you know anywhere that had big theatrical commitments, you couldn't even do it, even if you wanted to, because our nation's largest theater chain wasn't open. So you know it, it's a situation that just all around is just not a there's not there's not and, and then obviously consumers we get asked probably once every other day what's happening with Synchronic, and we're just like guys, I. I couldn't tell you I, even if I knew. I don't. I I don't know. And that's like, you know, we get stuck in this situation. Where it's like, you know, I, you don't want to give out bad information with everything changing so rapidly in the world today. It's like, you know, yeah, theaters are open today, but who knows if they're going to be open in a month? You know, schools were open in Georgia oh, at the beginning of the week. Dear Lord, closed. yeah. So it's like everything's, <laughs> yeah, everything's just changing so rapidly that there's just no way to kind of give out any kind of information that's you know, you can stand behind. And, and the last thing we want to do is is start putting out information and have people's hopes get dashed because of something we can't control. Well, at least She Dies Tomorrow seems to have had a pretty successful launch within that. Yeah, that was one of those things that when we were looking for distributors, that was the first kind of question that we would ask. We had, we had several companies that were interested. And that was like, well, how do you see this release? And Neon was very adamant. They're like, people need to see this right now. Nice. Like we'll put it yep. out in drive-ins. And this was right after kind of IFC had their real success with, with the wretched. They're like, we're going to do it in drive-ins. We're going to kind of follow that model and then really put it out on VOD because this is, this is something that, you know, might help on top of being topical. It actually might help somebody, which is, you know, that's the A plus plus. If your film, when we talk about trash fire, trash fire is another one that like, I get I get emails about maybe once a month somebody like stumbling on that with depression and like hits me up and it's like man I watched that movie and I like really like it's awesome to see somebody else who understands what I'm going through and it's like uh, it gives you the warm fuzzies because at the end of the day we're creating entertainment but if we can also help people it's a super A plus bonus. Yeah, Trash Fire was I hadn't heard of it until doing research for this and yeah that was that was an amazing watch and. <laughs> Good job on the ending on that one. Uh, I will say the, <laughs> en- the ending on that is the reason I agreed to produce the film. I had uh, I had seen uh, Excision, Ricky Bates' first film, and then I met him at the L.A. premiere of uh, Suburban Gothic. We had mutual friends, and he was a big fan of Spring and Resolution. And so kind of we were like, oh, hey. And he's like, oh, let me send you my new one. And I got, and I, I, I never forget this. I was reading 
that script on on my iPad at the time. And I was like, you know, you click the button and it goes to the next page. And and then I got to the ending and I just kept hitting the button because I was like, there's no way. I need more right now. And I think I called him immediately and I was like, I'm in. Like, I don't know how we're going to do this, but like, I'm fucking in. Yeah, I was watching and thinking, oh, please don't backpedal on this. It was like, oh, yes. No, he... The, Ricky Bates is known for a lot of things. Backpedaling is not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm definitely checking out the rest of his filmography now that I've seen it. That was yeah, that was it, quite the watch. It's great. And he's got a he's got a new one that he just finished that I'm a big fan of as well. Well, speaking of new things, you might have coming up. You've also got a short that you're working on, which would be Separation. Yeah, uh, yeah, we were able to. Do you guys know Rebecca McHenry? She's yeah, we follow her on Twitter. Podcasts. She's she's good people. She seems amazing. I just now subbed to her Patreon and started listening to her deep cuts there, specifically because she just released an episode covering the Shaw Brothers movie, The Boxer's Omen. Oh, yeah. I said, oh, that's five bucks worthy right there. <laughs> yeah. If you're covering Shaw Brothers horror movies, you get my money. So, and yeah, she seems fabulous. She is a wonderful, wonderful friend and has been for a long time. Uh, somebody that we've, we've been trying to do a feature with for a long time and kind of came to me last year and said, hey, I've got this similar to when we I did resolution. She's like, I got some money that I want to put together in a short and here's the short and I read it. And it's just like a wonderful metaphor of divorce and what it's like to be attached to somebody. And it's like a physical attachment. I thought, uh, this is awesome. And the effects team that we had was the same team that did the ritual. Really? Nice. So, nice. Yeah. So I I'm just like a huge fan of their work. They're phenomenal. And so I was like, yeah, I'm all in. I love her and her husband Dave. Uh, and her kids are amazing. Oh, <laughs> so it was really, it was really like a fun time, and that would be doing a full festival run right now, except there aren't any festivals right now. No, not the moment. But this episode's going to be going up on August thirty first, and my understanding is it's going to be playing the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival yep. online from September one to September eighth. Oh so yeah, so there you go. Right after this episode goes up. So, Wonderful. so yeah, if you're listening to this right around it comes out, please check that out. It's hifilmfest.eventive.org. And we'll link to it when we put the episode up as well. Wow. Yeah, we're really excited. I didn't even know it was playing there. Look at that. Huzzah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Horrible Imaginings, they put in a really, really good program every year. I've never gotten down to it, but I look through their program every year because it's right around this time. And for some reason, it's always when my life is busiest. But their program every year is really phenomenal. Oh, excellent. Well, is there anything else you were looking to plug aside from the items we've covered today? Man, I don't like to plug anything. <laughs> the, the Clippers play game three of their playoff push tonight. So that's uh... unfortunately, they're probably going to win too. Uh, yeah, probably. Uh, you know, it's really it's tough right now to plug things because obviously we have a lot of things that are that are coming up, but nothing that's like ready to be talked about yet. You know, we'll keep everybody as surprised as we can when we know you know the future of Synchronic. Obviously, it's something that. We're insanely proud of it as filmmakers. It was our first time to have like, you know, a, I hate to say a real budget because honestly, anytime anybody gives me money to make a movie, that is a real budget to me. Like that's that's somebody's money. Yeah. It's the first time we had, you know, what people would consider a real budget. And so it was a really, uh, a really awesome experience. Really proud of the movie. Anthony Mack and Jamie Dornan are amazing in it. Katie Azelstein also in that one. Uh, Ali Ionetis is in it as well. So we're really excited about that coming out. And as soon as we have information, anybody that kind of looks at our Twitter feed will know that we, you know, when it's coming out because we are nothing if not shameless self-promoters. 
I can safely say we're excited for it to come out too, and we'll continue to chew on our fingernails until it does. <laughs> I mean, we're guaranteed to do a special episode as soon as that hits. Well, you know, when you guys do, uh, let me know, and I'll have the guys on with me, and, and we can have a big round table about it. Oh, that'd All be right. amazing. Sounds fun. In between now and then, if folks want to check out Rustic Films, where's the best place for them to look you up? Man, this is stupid. Just a Facebook page? We have a website, too. I don't know. I'm terrible at this. I, I mean, uh, I, honestly, oh, this summer, we were like, we should make, like, a web page, guys. Uh, I don't think I've paid for it yet. We've built it, but I haven't paid for it. So just right now, go to the Facebook page. Uh, it's just Rustic Films. I just have this image in my head now, you know, a year from now, be a big old webpage, WordPress, oh, single dude. article, then you're just saying testing, testing. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's one of the things, it's, uh, th- there's a weird thing when there's just like three of you and you're, you're doing this thing and you're like, nobody cares, like, whatever, like, you know what I mean? Like, there's not like, <laughs> it's weird to us that people care about what we're doing in general. That's like a, an odd feeling. It's, you know, as you guys have a podcast now, it's like weird when people like, like reach out to you and you're like, Oh, wow. You listen to that. Yep. Like, there's, there's just like a, Our first instinct is to always apologize. I, I believe I said, sorry, as soon as we got on this call, like, sorry guys. Like, not be nearly do you as- do the same thing we do? And someone mentions like the end of an episode or movie. You're like, Oh, you actually got that far. Yes. I mean, it's, it's just, yeah, I'm just really, uh, you know, it's, it's what we are, are blessed to do, uh, as filmmakers and just like get to do this for a living. It really is. It's a fucking dream come true. I've had shitty jobs. I was in the military for a while. I worked as a, an office manager for a company that did accounting that did like end of year taxes. I've been a bartender. I've been a manager at a restaurant. Like we've had shitty jobs. And I can tell you that like, this is, this is truly every day I get to like wake up and come to my tiny little office is just like a fucking, it's a blessing because, uh, you know, people still care about it. That's fantastic. Just one last question for you before we leave. What's your favorite horror movie? Oh, man. Uh, like, oh, that's, that's like a really tough question. I, I mean, <laughs> there's so many different, like... We don't like, have another hour, Eric. I, like, that's the problem is that I can go into that. I, can go I thought into it that, would be a two-minute thing. I can go sorry. into that answer in so many different ways. Uh, and, and it really depends on my mood. Um, the Exorcist will always like be a gold standard Excellent choice. Hey. in terms of like a movie that really fucked with me. My, the first horror movie that I ever saw was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, nice. Which I saw because I watched the movie Summer School. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I had never seen a horror film before I watched the movie Summer School, and I was like, what the fuck are these guys talking about? Chainsaw and Dave. Hey, my name's Dave. I should watch this movie. Which is like the fucking wrong reason to watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre, <laughs> but also not. And then you know, Pet Cemetery was the first movie that actually scared me to death because I had a cat that looked just like the cat in Pet Cemetery. Oh yes, and I saw it way too young. Um, so like, like a whole bunch of my favorite, uh, my favorite recent. I love Cabin in the Woods. Excellent choice. I, I just you know that came out at the same time that Resolution did, and, and was very meta in a, way, a lot of ways that Resolution also was. Mm-hmm. So it kind of always holds that like special place in my heart, and I just think that like man, they fucking went for it in that movie, and just like went crazy. And some of the stuff is just amazing. Um, I can literally continue just listing horror films <laughs> 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 because, because now it's just kind of all I do. So we just gotta we gotta we gotta we gotta narrow the question. Like, what horror movie made you want to like sleep in the dryer for the night? <laughs> um, <laughs> God, um, oh, 
Oh my goodness! Hold on, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to look it up. It's not a horror film; it's a documentary. Ooh. Uh oh. About is the uh, the sleep paralysis one? No, red, white, and oh god, I'm gonna I'll hit you up on Twitter. It's a documentary about Florida that just came out. Oh, that sounds terrifying. Yeah. No. It's, <laughs> oh, it's, it's the scariest thing I've seen all year. <laughs> That was one of my favorite things about checking out Sun Don't Shine in the build-up to She Dies Tomorrow, because I loved Sun Don't Shine. It's it's so very dark, it's so dingy, and it's so Florida. <laughs> As somebody who spent a lot of time, unfortunately, in Florida when we were making After Midnight, it's its own kind of... My dad lives down there, so it was also really weird that I like kind of had a motorcycle at the time, because uh, my stepmother has a motorcycle that she didn't drive anymore, so I drove around on set and my motorcycle like it was the whole thing was just like felt like i felt like i was assimilating a little too little too well to florida <laughs> <laughs> like three more weeks down there and i might have just lived down there just become an official florida man yeah no i don't <laughs> the florida man is just amazing like you go you, the, the deep dive into doing florida man uh is you know, florida man is maybe one of the greatest episodes of the planet as well yeah, I, I just recently watched that. It's just terrifying. <laughs> I'll plug a show that I'm not even a part of. <laughs> We're not good at this promotion thing. Shameless and just not good at it. <laughs> but honest to God, thank you so much for coming out. We honestly couldn't be happier to have you. Oh. We really appreciate you taking yeah, the Thank time. you very much. Wonderful time. It was my pleasure. And again, you know, when, when we have information on Synchronic and it's out... Uh, you guys do your episode, let us know. We'll come back and all three of us will chat about uh, what it's like to be hobo filmmakers. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like fun. No, we're looking forward to it. And in the meantime, just thank you so much and stay safe for us, okay? All right, man. Talk to you guys soon. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Take care. So, that happened. Holy shit. We're going to be reeling from David Lawson's generosity for a while, but... In the meantime, we want to thank him once again for his time and for fielding ridiculous questions from us. And like we mentioned earlier, please check out She Dies Tomorrow on VOD. And Rebecca McKendry's Short Separation is playing at the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival online from September 1st to September the 8th. And we should have some fun announcements in the next week or so after this episode goes up. So keep an eye on our Twitter feed at twitter.com scariestuffpod. In the meantime, on behalf of Jacob and Nick, this is Eric saying thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.